Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans. Thank you so much for downloading episode number 13 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the Twisted Genius, Dean Ayers, and I'm joined as ever by my colleague, sports journalist, Liam Happ. Liam, it's been a long time. We've both been very busy, but it's good to be back. How are you doing? Long? Oh, mate, it feels like forever. Uh, I may have touched one last episode I was moving house, didn't I? Well, that's done yeah. now. I'm now in Casa del Hap, which is apparently a clubhouse for foxes and their fucking shit. <laughs> but after after two weeks of acclimatising, getting a little two-year-old daughter settled in and cleaning up all that doo-doo, uh, we are here, and yeah, it's so much better. I feel like I've got my own little studio here. I'll get kicked out of it in five minutes by the wife, but for, for the next couple of hours, this is my studio. I've never been able to say that before. You sound like a proper adult now. Proper adult, yeah. Yeah. I'm a geezer. Own, your own gaff. My gaff, Marvelous. my pad, yeah. Yes. So, um, we've got ourselves a guest. Oh, do we? We've got ourselves a very good guest. Now... Normally, I've, I've got to say, this would mean nothing to, to anyone else listening, but we're going to mention it anyway. Ordinarily, Liam and I, we, uh, we, do, this, um, we do this podcast, you know, sort of around sort of half seven, eight o'clock in the evening after, you, after you've had our dinner, after your daughter's gone to bed. Today, we're doing this a lot earlier. It's, uh, it's quarter past five in the afternoon. And the reason we're doing it at this time is because our guest is transatlantic we have had to cross time zones to do this and uh, i believe it's it's quarter past 12 on the uh, over in the uh, east coast of america for our guest today is none other than the well so we your, your wikipedia says semi-retired pro wrestler but we know wrestlers never retire uh wrestler promoter trainer podcaster mike quackenbush mike hello thank you for joining us Guys, thanks for having me on. How you doing? I'm doing well today, and I'm excited to be on. Um, this is because WCW has become like a regular part of my podcasting diet. So, uh, I mean, not only do I make podcasts, but I listen to podcasts voraciously, and this has really become part of my regular diet. So, it is a bit of a thrill to be on the podcast. Thank you. It's a thrill to know you listen to us. Marvelous. So, you are you are the man. Uh, synonymous with Chikara Pro Wrestling, of course. Uh, how how did that journey all start? Well, it, it was kind of born out of like a boredom about a monotony that was happening in the United States after WCW and ECW get gobbled up. Here in the States, there was like a vacuum in the pro wrestling sphere. And uh, I've been an independent wrestler the entirety of my career. So by this point, you know, I, I, I was well-traveled, had been all over the United States. But I noticed how desperately all the independent companies suddenly wanted to be tagged as the next ECW. And right. a lot of them started to change their tone and their content in an effort to capture, I think, what they imagined was this orphaned ECW audience. 
Um, and, and, you know, the, in the long term, of course, the loss of WCW and ECW has had a profound impact on professional wrestling worldwide, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. But in that moment, it just seemed as if everyone was trying to jump into this same bowl. Um, you know, like, no, we're the next ECW. We're the next ECW. And what characterized that change was a, a desire to want to push the envelope in terms of risque content, violent content, stuff that felt more mature, um, really kind of uh, people maybe who didn't fully understand what it was that gave ECWs its edge did a bad job of aping it. But that was everywhere on the American independent scene following the demise of WCW and ECW. And so Chikara was kind of born out of like a desire to take a bold step in the complete opposite direction. Um, wrestling was taking itself far too seriously. It really seemed concerned with trying to make the most adult content you could get away with without someone being arrested. And we just decided, let's make something that moves in the complete opposite direction and see where that journey takes us. And and so uh, and so Chikawa was born. That was it. And yeah, and then we thought, what could we do to light piles of money on fire as fast as possible? <laughs> and we thought, ooh, let's start a wrestling company. <laughs> but Chikawa has been going a long, long time. You must be doing something, right? Uh, <laughs> we must be doing something. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it, you know, our anniversary is, is just about 24 hours away now. Hard to believe, we, you know, we're wrapping up 16 full years of doing it. And so, yes, we persevere and we, we've kind of made it, you know, certain missions our own. You know, we, I think we were probably the first going back 15 years now to institute the idea that there are no genders between bells. Um, the, as we like to say, equal rights and equal fights. The guys fight the girls and the girls fight the guys. Um there have been certain things that have really kind of become our mission over the years in terms of the way we wanted to see the art form progress. And like we continue to carry that banner. Certainly, you know, other people are out there um, doing the same. They're, they're, they've made the cause their own. They've taken they've made their own take on it. But we're still impassioned about certain things in professional wrestling and where we want the game to progress. Or as we sometimes remark internally, we love pro wrestling so very much. We want to see it change. Fair enough. Nice. Yes. I mean, it is men fighting women is something is, is spreading around. I, I don't know how much in, in America, but in this country it is spreading uh, around the country. There is a company that has a gender neutral title as well. Um, it, it is, it is fast growing. So yeah, you guys were, were pioneers of that. Um, also, of course, Chikara has, you know, strong connections with, with the United Kingdom. Um, I remember a few years ago, you uh, you brought over a, a good friend of mine, the the magnificent Johnny Kidd and Johnny Saint for your King of Trios tournament. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were fortunate enough to have both Saint and Kidd come and join us uh, on a, on a couple of occasions. Kidd more frequently, I think, than Saint, um, as Johnny Saint has sort of um, disappeared once again. Uh, he's really content especially after his most recent stint at the WWE's Performance Center, where he was a, yeah. a coach for six months, um, just in communication with him. And I, I don't know if you've ever been lucky enough to get an email from Johnny Saint, but it tends to be one sentence long. Oh, right. Uh, okay. You, you could write him a book, and you're going to get a response that is one sentence long. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think he's really had his fill of it. And, you know, he's a, he's an avid motorcycle rider, Johnny yes. Saint. And, yes, indeed. Uh, he, he belongs to a club. Right. So he and, his, he and his mates like to go out and cycle around, and, and that's sort of what he does. Um, and he's getting up there in years as well. I remember him remarking 
the last time he wrestled for Chikara here in the States. After the match, he said to me, Mike, I feel like a dinosaur out there. And uh, it just took, took something out of me to hear him say that out loud when, to, to me, he is among the very most brilliant wrestlers that have ever existed. There's certainly not a better escapologist out there, but in terms of making you understand the nuance and the detail and the beauty of, of wrestling, I don't know somebody better at that than Johnny Saint. And to hear him give voice to the emotion that he felt like maybe his time has passed, I, I, I felt hurt by it, and I can only imagine what he must have felt to actually say it out loud. Mm. I mean, yeah, the fluid motion is no there is no one more fluid i think than than, than johnny say is an absolute joy to watch how, how did the the king of trios because i mean the, the, the 2017 king of trios was was in this country in birmingham how was the tr king of trios uh, created well we got together and we said to ourselves how could we light a big pile of money on fire as fast as possible and get rid of it. And we thought this wrestling organization is just not losing money fast enough. Guys, let's do a giant bloated <laughs> tournament. How many people? 24, that's not enough. Let's get 48 and divide them up into 16 trios. And let's see how big that pile of money is. And let's just up and smoke, let's go. So yeah, I would say recklessness was the main inspiration. Hey, no, I, I, I actually resent that because you know, a fair, a fair, a fair chunk of my money was set on fire with that event. I, I was, I was a uh, ticket holder for all three nights. I bought some merch. I had a very good time, and I got to say, you know, Dean's well aware of Shikara and of Mike Quackenbush, but I believe it's fair to say, Dean, you haven't actually attended a show yet, have you? I have not had the pleasure. No, I think um, I was booked. I was booked elsewhere on uh, that that weekend in Wolverhampton. Otherwise, I would have been there. Yeah, fair, fair do. But at, so, at some point, if Shikara is able to get back, and you know, if if Mike continues to enjoy uh, green coloured bonfires, then yeah. I will make sure if, with everything in my power, I'll make sure you're there because I think you'll have a tremendous time. Absolutely. And of course, the beauty of having it in the United Kingdom is that the bonfire is multiple colors rather than just green because of That's our, very true. our cash. So, that was the yeah. main attraction, guys. We thought, <laughs> you know, this fire at home is getting dull. What could we do to spice it up? Yeah, you know? check the color. Right. Let's take the whole giant ensemble across an ocean. That should really up the ante. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um... <laughs> How how did you uh, how did you discover and uh, hopefully fall in love with WCW? WWF the first time that I saw it, it really did not capture my imagination. Um, I, I I knew what professional wrestling was as a, as an American in the '80s because it was so ubiquitous in pop culture. Lou Albano was in Cyndi Lauper's music video. The Rock and Wrestling cartoon was on Saturday mornings. Um, it was not unusual to see a kid in a Hulk Hogan or an Ultimate Warrior T-shirt. Um, so you know, I was aware that professional wrestling was booming, but I, I didn't understand it. And a kid in my neighborhood used to get the pay-per-views when there were just four a year and would have all the neighborhood kids over to his place. They, his parents would order pizza pies and we'd all sit around and enjoy them together. And I would watch it because that's what all the kids in the neighborhood were doing. But I thought, I don't get it. Like, I don't see... What, what about this grabs you? And I think I was just waiting for the right character or maybe the right story to really hook me and pull me in. But for me, the thing that really grabbed me about it was one day I was flipping channels. And um, I remember what my Saturday day uh, morning and afternoon viewing habits were on television. So in the morning, there were cartoons I would watch. 
But then in the afternoon, there was fair like um, Knight Rider and the A-Team. Do, the, do those names mean anything to you guys, by the Abs- way? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Love the know, A-Team as a kid. Right, like I realize that that might seem intrinsically American, and yet I want to believe people do know what Knight Rider and the A-Team are. Oh, yeah, um, they, uh, they made the syndication bubble very quickly, I think, with 100 episodes. So they get this, to this day, they get repeated on a loop on international tv show like those digital uh sky tv channels you get right at the bottom of the listing they get the marathons at like <laughs> 4 a.m right well one day at the end of all that you know i'd watched all the syndicated action shows that were on in the afternoon and i was flipping channels and there was a i think it was a tag team match and brian pillman was on one side and jushin liger was on the other and oh. there i had never seen a wrestler dressed the way Jushin Liger was dressed. I'd never seen a wrestler, even just the way he came to the ring with the shoulder harness, with the cape. And immediately, I think, my comic book loving brain just latched onto all the familiar tropes. You know, here's a guy who who is a superhero, like a, le- a, a legitimate superhero, the way it lives in my mind. He has a costume, he has a mask, he has a cape. Oftentimes, when you would read like promotional copy, people would say, Things like, oh, Hulk Hogan, a real American superhero. But I looked at him and I'm like, no, that's just a bald guy in his underwear. That's not what a superhero is. A superhero has a cape and a mask and flies around, has superpowers, you know. And Liger, in this match, uh, this this exact tag team match that I saw on television, did an acai moonsault. It was like on a WCW Saturday night type show. And that was so far removed from what I would see when I went to my friend's house to watch WrestleMania six. And Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior are doing a test of strength that lasted for 11 minutes. So there was something about this that just immediately magnetized me and made me think, I want to dive into this universe as fully as possible. And when they went through the phase where the WWF um, starts to decide this is our new direction, the new generation is ending and the Attitude Era is beginning and their direction starts to change, probably maybe best identified by Bret Hart's becoming the villain and Steve Austin is becoming an anti-hero, I I switched to WCW full-time. Like, I no longer watched WWF programming. I only watched WCW. So at least someone was. (laughs) because <laughs> from 98 onwards well we've covered it many times here but thankfully we'll, we'll be looking at something that's a a little more cheerful this is you know halloween havoc 96 is a at the time it was a record setting pay-per-view and mm-hmm. well, i don't know what you guys thought but for oh as usual i'm going to take great pleasure in getting into the 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 negative parts of this but all in all this is a this is a very enjoyable wcw pay-per-view before things start to go as we say over in Britain, tits up. Yeah. I mean, what made you choose this uh, particular show, Mike? This, to me, is a great look at what WCW was like. And the, and it speaks a little bit to a common criticism of the two major organizations in the U.S. Maybe you guys have heard this as well. What was often said was WCW puts on great cards except their main events. And at the same time, people said the exact reverse of the WWF. The main events always deliver. Everything underneath is crap. And people used to, uh, maybe fantasy book might be the way to put it. If you took what that month's WWF main event was and swapped it out for what WCW had put on top of its card, you had breathtaking pay-per-view lineups. Absolutely, yeah. 
that was that was the yeah the common thinking at the time, and and I think this this show is is certainly one of those. Um, right. This really exemplifies that, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, I, I think it's quite seminal in a way because yeah, we covered we've covered one other ninety six pay view, and those two was a completely different animal back then. Six months before this, it was uncensored, and yeah, it had one of the most abysmal WCW main events you could possibly imagine: the Doomsday Cage. Sorry to remind you of that, Dean, but yeah. Oh, point, point point being is there's definitely evidence that suggests that WCW had that formula before the NWO. It was very much a Hogan full-stop thing where the main event would be quite terrible, and they did have that great undercard. But they had that summer period where even the main events were starting to heat up because there was a few months in the spring where Hogan just couldn't be bothered showing up, and Giant was champion. Giant was, I thought, Giant punched above his weight in his in his rookie year. Uh, you know, he had challenges like Sting and Luger, so it was quite good. Then you had the Bash of the Beach main event, which obviously was incredible. And it looked like things were turning the corner. I thought this, this pay-per-view was quite crucial in that it showed that while the New World Order and the way things were at this point were bringing in record amounts of money and made WCW for once that the hip and the fresh product, uh, this proved that certain things weren't going to change. And you could look at it maybe as, the, as that first sign that whatever they did right, it was only ever going to last so long because those very, those roots of fucking themselves over were very much still there, unfortunately. <laughs> He's he's passionate. He's passionate, Mike. Yeah, and I've I've already put us in a nice negative tone. <laughs> Thankfully, we've got an opener that will cheer us up. I think we have. So let's let's get into things. So it is yes, it's WCW Halloween Havoc '96. Uh, so the show open video is a collection of uh, NWO attacks by Hogan and the Outsiders. And this is the period. I'm sure we'll talk about this more. But this is the period. It's it's October. It's a few months after Hogan's monumental heel turn. There is plenty of momentum. Um, with the whole NWO angle at the moment, they haven't overloaded it with people. It is fresh. It is new. It feels, it feels good. Uh, and tonight he's facing his old adversary, the man he turned heel on at bash at the beach, Randy macho man, savage. Um, it's quite amusing to me to see that the main baby face protagonists in the opening video are Eric Bischoff and Randy Savage, given that both would join the NWO before very long themselves. Hmm. Um, we're at the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Las Vegas, um, which now, now Tony Schiavone, we usually reaccuse him of uh, exaggeration and hyperbole, but he, you know, fair enough. He says it's the entertainment capital of the world, and he's pretty much right in this occasion. Um, he describes Hogan v. Savage as the most important world title match ever, however. <laughs> bless him. Um, and joining Tony Schiavone on the uh, broadcast team are Bobby Heenan and Dusty Rhodes. And, and I, know, I know you're going to be making a few comments about that as the uh, as the show goes on Liam because of uh, some of the comments I was getting from you while you were watching it oh, um, so anyway let's um, let's get into the action because to, to WCW's credit after it's just two minutes we go straight into the opener it's a title match it's for the WCW Cruiserweight title Dean Malenko is challenging Rey Mysterio Jr 
two men who have incredibly similar entrance themes. It's it's strange to watch a, a 22-year-old Rey Mysterio looking half the size that he did in his WWE heyday. Uh, Mike Tanay has joined the commentary team because uh, I guess Dusty can't be trusted to talk about cruiserweights. Um, it's a fast opening. Malenko is going for the cloverleaf in the first minute. It puts over the urgency of a title match. Um, Tanay talks about masks and how without the mask, Rey Mysterio would be finished. Uh, obviously, Eric Bischoff wasn't paying attention to the commentary in this match. Uh, Mysterio lands a flip plancher right into the view of the camera and recaptures a mask that Malenko had stolen from him. He then changes masks mid-match, which I think is the first time I've ever seen that happen. Um, Malenko blocks a spinning head scissors attempt with a side slam and changes the pace of the match. He executes an awesome-looking modified bow and arrow hold with extra stretch, type of move I could see someone like Zack Sabre Jr. using these days. Um, and the story of the match is basically Malenko using submission holds to frustrate the crowd who wants to see spectacular moves and they keep charging, keep making noise for Mysterio. The crowd pop for a simple, quick, small package. They think, you know, that it's going to be a, a pinfall. They're properly invested in the match. But the story of the match, every time Malenko, uh, Mysterio tries to get some momentum going, he gets cut off by Malenko. The end of the match comes when Mysterio goes for a top rope Hurricane Rana, gets shoved off by Malenko, and when Mysterio goes back up to the top to try again, Malenko hooks him up with a gut wrench powerbomb off the top rope for the pinfall to win the title in 18 and a half minutes. Um, fantastic opening. The only thing I think if, if I had one piece of criticism is that Malenko largely dominated the match. I was therefore expecting Mysterio to grab the quick win, which didn't happen, but a great match. Yeah, what a fantastic opener this is, and it tells you something about where wrestling was, that they were given almost 19 full minutes to open up a pay-per-view that's that's loaded. This pay-per-view has got, it's just stacked top to bottom, and yet they carved out 19 minutes for Malenko and Mysterio, who, well, they weren't exactly unknowns, but, you know, they also weren't the kind of guys that you would generally see any further up the card than this. I was also struck by, I, I'm an avid fan of both these guys. These are guys that I, I studied, and I had only been wrestling about two years when this pay-per-view was on. The speed and crispness of everything these two guys did, given that Malenko's not trained in the lucha style, and Mysterio at the time, he is the most cutting-edge luchador there is. Like, WCW really just lucked out when they got Mysterio through the Conan deal. And, and the flip side of that coin is look at the same, look at the luchadors that Vince McMahon ends up getting in the next calendar year uh, for his events. Some of them show up at the Royal Rumble. Some yes, of them you'll see turn yeah. up on Monday Night Raw. Um, it really was like, who was aligned with the correct group? And the answer was WCW. Mysterio, Psychosis, Hooventude, they are the most cutting-edge luchadors available at the time, and WCW had them. And yet Malenko, who you know trained in Florida under Boris Malenko, obviously, but really cut his teeth in Japan, tagging with his brother for All Japan Pro Wrestling, is not a native of that style, and he does it beautifully. I mean, Milenko is a he's a great base for an aerial cruiserweight, isn't he? Yeah, and it, one of the things that I always think about is um, the way in which pro wrestling as an art form has changed. And here we are in 2018. Uh, this is my opinion. I'd love to hear what you two think about this. If Dean Malenko turned up for a tryout at the Performance Center in this day and age, he would not get hired. I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd pretty much agree. I think they'd, they'd say too ordinary, too mm -hmm. small. I'd, I'd, maybe not too small these days, but 
right? They say yeah. he doesn't have the charisma. He doesn't have the X factor. He doesn't yeah. have that special thing. Sorry, not yeah, you. That's what I doesn't, think. Doesn't stand out. Doesn't turn heads at the airport. All that sort of thing. Yeah. Where do you weigh in on this, Liam? Um, my, <laughs> I tend to agree a tiny bit, but I also think, you know, 1996 around this time, we've got a guy in the WWF by the name of Chris Candido, who was hired, but then you could also argue the the package deal with Tammy Sitch, who obviously at the time had huge marketing potential for various reasons. Um, you know, Jim Cornette's there as well. You know, he's this was when he did have a good relationship with WF, so he's making the lobby. But with a, with a little thing here and a little thing there, Chris Candido gets in. He gets featured in the mid card, and I think it was a, not too long afterwards they went to transition him, if I recall correctly, into a a player coach role where he he would wrestle on TV in very minor roles, maybe not even on Raw, and his his chief job would be to train, I think they want him to train guys like Brackus, if you remember that name. Oh, yes. Um, he screams out as the sort of thing Dean Malenko could possibly get. With, a, with the right timing, maybe the right voice behind the scenes at WF, if there's a guy who already works as an agent who's a huge friend of this time-travelling 2018 version of Prime Malenko. Um, he could get a job, but yeah, he'd be featured for a little bit and then moved into that coach role. Uh, Simon Dean rings a bell as well, which is ironic mm-hmm. given how they yep. gave him his... <laughs> how they gave Nova his WWE name. But there's guys in that in that sort of category, and we are of this age now where WWE, for, for, for dominant business reasons, are snapping up a lot of wrestlers and obviously have no intention of trying to market most of them beyond a certain level so I think he could someone like that could get hired but it would be f- with an asterisk you could say for certain mm-hmm. reasons yeah I think it would be it wouldn't be on first impressions and uh, you know I think no yeah that and, and and I'm sure you know Mike will agree as a as a promoter himself that you know there are there are certain people that you will have on your roster who will never be the headliner but is someone who is they are reliable and they are versatile and can work with pretty much anybody and that is that is the role that Dean Malenko fulfills in WCW bricks and mm-hmm. right yeah i often call those utility players you can yeah. really plug them into any scenario and they will get the very most out of their opponent that they could that that's literally that that is me uh, any job i've had uh, anytime, anytime I play football <laughs> or soccer after hours, that is me. I, I, I'm the one who usually sits back in front of defence, slotting in where I need to, doing a little quiet work. You know, in cycling they call it domestique, I believe, mm. which which shows I used to work for Eurosport that I know about cycling. <laughs> but uh, and, and, but yeah, and, and the French word, yeah. As 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 someone who has you know had that experience of being that guy, obviously nowhere near professional wrestling, but in my own. Uh, professional experiences I have a lot of respect for the use of that obviously you know t- tell a professional wrestler you're only going to do so much and this is what happened this is why I used the Candido argument Candido left because he had no desire to to sit back in that sort of role so mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to see um, obviously when he did have a WWE career Malenko it was 
I don't know what happened behind the scene. I know he was working as an agent for quite some time, so he seemed to be happy. I did also see mm-hmm. some shoot interviews that suggested that he was quite grumpy a lot of the time. So <laughs> I don't know. Well, he does continue to function backstage as an agent. That much I can tell you for certain. And um, because I just happen to have a, a couple of my Wrestle Factory graduates that work now for WWE, I do yeah. get to hear little bits and pieces of what it's like um, to work with Malenko, who, as you could probably gather, has a very dry, sarcastic sense of humor. And even I, I I've only ever spoken to Malenko uh, twice, both times by telephone. Uh, there was a very brief flirtation with um, him and one of the King of Trios tournaments. Even I at first was like, wow, this guy has got like a really funny but dry sense of humor. And I bet if you didn't get that he's being funny, you could mistake him for being grumpy. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But yeah, on uh, as far as this match goes, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a big Malenko fan as well. So there's a few matches of his I like, but I'm, off the top of my head, I'm struggling to think of a performance of which I'm a bigger fan. This, for me, is peak Malenko. One of the reasons for that is what you guys already touched upon and the way he just just, just adapts himself to the style of his opponent, which is something I always liked that he could do. He sometimes got a lot of stick for seem, seeming quite stoic in the ring, but mm. I could, you, you know, Mike will know more than either of us two just how much concentration it can sometimes take to adapt to the more difficult matches. And if he's doing that a lot, and he's re- if he's reining in his opponent's style, uh, that's got to take a lot of concentration. Here, I didn't even think he was that stoic. Is the funny thing. Um, his demeanour was brilliant. He set himself up as a foil, as Dean said. He was looking to 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 get. The Las Vegas fans who, you know, they're not a die-hard customer base. This isn't Jacksonville, this isn't Chicago. And he's made sure that they want Mysterio to fly around that ring. He has grounded him. I thought he did a masterful job. I love the little story Bobby Heenan told at the start of the commentary. I don't know if you guys picked up on that with the uh, bellhop at the hotel. Just, just a little way of getting across just how just how business-like Dean Malenko is and just how... Honorary, he can be like what, in what did character. You say, um, basically, che- he, he he said he was there when he checked into the hotel, Malenko, and the uh, the bellhop tried to engage him in small talk, and like he, he shot him down, and refused to let him carry his own carries or something like that. Right, yeah, he um, wouldn't let him carry his bags, and uh, on checking in, he just ignored what the uh, the, the clerk was saying and said, yeah. "I'm here on business." And I thought this was such a great example of Heenan doing one of the things that that Heenan is awesome at, but with the wrong combination of people. And I'm biased in that Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby the Brain Heenan are my favorite commentary duo of all time. Like, that's the sort of thing where Gorilla will know just enough to let him run with it, where it really seemed like, and as this pay-per-view goes on, it really seemed like Tony, Dusty, and Bobby are just like, I don't know if they're all on different pages throughout. They're stepping on each other's toes. They don't know how to set each other up for maximum success. And the brain's work really suffers as a result because Bobby the Brain Heenan, generally speaking, in this role, there's nobody better. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, still, he's still got in those little tidbits, those lines, which shows, as you said, he shows his individual excellence. But yeah, I agree on the lack of chemistry. But I also love the lack of chemistry to an extent. I, I suppose I, I should I should get into this 
a little later when it gets really good, but I might as well set the premise here. I said this to Dean this afternoon while we were setting up the show. I am absolutely adamant that although it's well documented that there were chemistry issues between Tony and Bobby, I feel like they were very much, on this night in Las Vegas 22 years ago, they were very much on the same page because it felt like they were trying to marginalise and basically piss off Dusty at every turn. There were so many instances where... And at first it was just Bobby doing it. I thought, well, that's, that's Heenan being Heenan. That's his character. Where he would make the same point Dusty just made and then Tony would acknowledge it and then mm-hmm. Dusty would be like oh, I, I just said that. I literally just said that and there's a point I think it's before the uh, the Jeff Jarrett giant match like a couple of matches down the line uh, where he said Dusty said yeah, I just made that point and Bobby quick as you like just told him yeah but I'm saying it in English <laughs> and then and then later in the show Tony does the exact same thing where he treads on Dusty mm-hmm. and I'm like they're trying to make him quit live on air aren't they so I was a huge <laughs> fan of that sometimes as you know sometimes a, a car wreck can be a bad thing or a very very good thing and although I've slated this commentary set up like we all are here today this was one of those events where I just got a massive kick out of it <laughs> I mean I've got to say I, you know, as, as a commentator myself and someone who quite often does the, the heel commentator role if I can be a fraction of, of what Bobby Heenan was like then I'll, I'll be happy with that I mean the guy yeah, if you can put, your, if you can put the, the wrestler's character over while still maintaining your heel character and make it all relevant then, then all power to you. He, he was the absolute best at that. Um, so after that match, we have Lee Marshall backstage with Jeff Jarrett, who's talking about his match with the Giant. Um, and then uh, Ric Flair turns up and just cuts one of those maniacal promos that only Ric Flair can do. And I can only conclude that Ric Flair is just happy to be in Las Vegas because if there's one person in the world who should be in Las Vegas, it's Ric Flair, basically. Is this, uh, Dean, is this because of the alcoholic element and he does love a drink it's it's everything it's the it's the bright lights it's the blues it's the girls it's the gambling it's it's the 24-hour lifestyle it's everything that's all well and good that's very true but i did think of drink when i saw this little promo of his because it started for me i went to i didn't actually drink during while watching this but i thought to myself you could play a very good drinking game watching halloween havoc 996 and okay. you, what you do is you take a drink every time rick flair desperately tries to get jeff jerry over as a member of the <laughs> and i th- i thought that was fine i amused myself i thought this is really good ha 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 uh, and then the show carried on and i ended up with about a dozen different drinking games that you could play. So, whatever you do, guys, like, um, if I end up dropping some of my, my ideas, don't actually play a drinking game or several of these drinking games. Havoc 96, it will hurt you. It will hurt your liver. Please don't do that. Because there are a lot more than I realise there possibly could be. But I will I will try and share my findings as we go along, for better or worse. Yeah, we, we, could, do, we, we could do like uh, a drinking game what live watch back of a nitro episode and just see what condition we're in by the end of the two hours. Uh, I think Podbean <laughs> will kick us off. Quite possibly. <laughs> okay, match number two. It's uh, it's uh, our old pal DDP, Diamond Dallas Page, who seems to turn up on every pay-per-view we cover. So um, this is the battle, apparently, for the Battle Bowl ring, which I must admit to not remembering anything about. Liam, do you remember what this was all about? 
I do, and I think the best way for the listeners to tie this in is to start from... Well, we covered Uncensored 96 not too long ago. DDP lost to Booty Man. Don't, don't try and remember that match. It was fucking abysmal. But he lost to Booty Man. It was meant to be storyline. He's gone. He's out of WCW. Um, He'd lost all his money, hadn't he? Yes, he was completely... And they've, they've tried to do this uh, rags-to-riches comeback story with a heel... Uh, with very little backstory explanation to make us care about him, where he stays a hill afterwards. Uh, and the, the main culmination was that Slamboree, he won the... Uh, they, they did a lethal lottery to be the Lord of the Ring, if I remember correctly. And it came with the winner would get this ring. Which, you know, we've, the history of professional wrestling has have, has had people try to bring out alternatives to belts with mixed results we've had trophies this that and the other you know uh and in this case the ring didn't really work uh the i think the idea was that he was number one contender to the world title with it he never actually cashed that in but he defended the ring a bunch of times and he remained a hill so the rags to riches thing made zero sense thankfully his act was getting a little bit over. He's starting to, you know, you look at him here and he's kind of half cigar chomping hill and he's half the the cool edgy DDP that would actually become a huge star uh, very soon after this. And he basically spent six months before he had that big angle with the outsiders that, that put him in the stratosphere. He spent six months defending the ring against people. But apparently the thing is here is that he lost it to Eddie Guerrero, I believe, and then it suddenly went missing, with the implication being that he stole it because he lost it and he was being a sore loser. But it was very the, the only real sort of uh, dedication we get to the storytelling here is the commentators constantly going, this is for the, the ring, which has mysteriously disappeared. Drinking game number two. Every time they say the ring's disappeared, four fingers of alcohol. Uh, but yeah, that's where we are. But DDP and Guerrero, yeah, it's a good combination for for a wrestling match to just have. And yeah, I, I don't know if I'm not sure if they had any pay per view matches before this, but they definitely had a few afterwards. They had a good little uh, yes. run going, yeah. and yeah, there's a hard worker in Page and a very good multifaceted worker in Guerrero. I thought they kept the shows decent streak going from here yeah i mean nick patrick is refereeing this match he's wearing a neck brace he sells his neck throughout the match um i do have to say as well from personal experience if there is nothing wrong with your neck wearing a neck brace is incredibly uncomfortable um guerrero shows a bit of a mean streak here he's fired up dominates the opening five minutes until ddp crotches him on the top rope and then takes over uh the pace of the match is quite deliberate ddp hits a nice over the shoulder backbreaker into a gut buster uh he gets increasingly frustrated because his pinfall attempts come up short shoves nick patrick nick patrick shoves him back uh into a roll up from guerrero um and nick patrick continues to berate ddp which gets a pop from the crowd um, later in the match, Guerrero hits a spectacular crossbody block from the top rope to the floor onto DDP, but only gets a two count when he rolls Page back into the ring. Um, Page hits a move that's, that's very much like a Styles clash for a two count. 
um, and a sit-out power bomb also gets a two. Uh, and DDP then hits um, quite a protracted diamond cutter to win the match clean. Took ages to set it up, but the, the, the crowd and commentators didn't seem to to expect it to be the finish, but but a good match all in all. And a weird trivia note about uh, the diamond cutter's evolution. That move you alluded to in there, Dean, where he picks up Eddie like a pile driver and then kind of falls forward. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of like the neutralizer. The commentators call it the flapjack. That's when right, when I yes. first started watching WCW TV, they called that the diamond cutter. Really? And, yes. I, and ironically, the uh, I think that he actually started calling it properly. It wasn't a flapjack. It was a different breakfast food, the pancake. Yeah. Which was the actual <laughs> name they settled on for that, the pancake. But yeah, very Styles Clash neutralizer-esque, wasn't it? I like that from DDP. Yeah, you could see he was trying out a lot of new material. Um, even his execution of the diamond cutter here, you could see it's kind of in its nascent form, which was fun to see. This is the start of like DDP's ascent up the card, and he's just starting to assemble all of the ingredients. I couldn't help but feel, though, and I don't know if you guys felt the same, the finish was slightly anticlimactic. Yeah. There's a reason for that. All right. Um, I think Guerrero's last offensive move, or when he made his babyface comeback, he hit really sweet plunger to the outside. Mm-hmm. And then after that, Page took over pretty quickly. And that's where he went through his little array of his big moves, the pancake slash flapjack slash... Yeah, the sit-out power bomb <laughs> yeah. and then the diamond. Cutter. Yeah. Uh, and apparently, and this is like a lot of these tidbits that I'm not going to get from watching it as a viewer myself. This is with the help of the Wrestling Observer. Um, Guerrero picked up a, they say it might have been a broken rib, a very nasty rib. And you could tell he was definitely awkward. He was in a lot of pain by by the sounds of it. And yeah, I'm not exactly sure what the finish was, was going to be. But they ran through a bunch of pages moves as as Mike says of a lot of his moves that he's trying to get over because uh, the previous incarnations of Paige we've covered so far and because those WE he spends a lot of time selling and playing up his heel character. This was this was the most offensive we'd seen Paige at this point on the on the actual chronological timeline. And he's also known to be a very meticulous match planner. So maybe without realising the severity of Guerrero's injuries like, well, I've got to do my thing the way I've set it out but yeah, it really is weird to see him hit that diamond cutter where he actually sets him up in the cravat and holds it and then goes for it. It's nothing like what got the move over where that whole hitting it from out of nowhere and the snap he used to get on it after this. So it was yeah. it was weird seeing that in those formative months. Also interesting that um, Nick Patrick is a completely down-the-line babyface referee at this point in time, which which probably telegraphs what's going to happen later on in the show. Um, we then have uh, an interview with the macho man who seems to be off his tits, um, drawing these Slim Jim sweepstakes. Um, this is this is so good, though, guys. <laughs> like Him acting like he broke the Slim Jim thing to pull the name out, all of it is gold. Yeah, It's amazingly awkward. Because <laughs> Macho Man is trying to do a promo while Mike Tanay is reading some legal wording that he has to read out. <laughs> um, and then some woman in Michigan has won a Slim Jim branded monster truck. And then later on, they think that that's the truck that they bring out for Macho Man for the main event. And it's then they realize it's a different truck. And 
It's amazing. And then Matt Savage manages to cut a promo on Hogan and plug Slim Jim all at the same time. I mean, and, you know. Who... And he asked the contest winner out on a date. That's right, yes. In, in the middle. He, that's like Savage <laughs> dialed up to 10. And Mike Tanay <laughs> stays at two the whole time. And the contrast between them is delicious. It's it's brilliant. It is, it's, yeah, it's just amazingly awkward. The whole thing is fantastic. Yeah, one of my biggest regrets about the life and career of Randy Savage, he never did get that deal to do improv comedy because he would have been absolutely <laughs> amazing. He just he could just weather as you said he could weather absolutely anything and he would just steam through it regardless. And this was a great uh, my my favourite thing about this particular segment though, and he kept it on for the match later on, is he's actually got Slim Jim branded, typical macho man, wrestling gear, but it's all Slim Jim branded, Slim yeah, Jim colours with the catchphrase on. And for those, because I'm aware that there's, you know, amongst our two dozen listeners in the UK who haven't been to the States, I just was like, if you heard all this stuff about Slim Jim and Master Seven, it's a fucking pepper army. It's no big deal. It's not. It's not even that nice, to be honest with you. I'm sorry if I offend anyone, but it's it's a we call it a pepper army over here, and that's what Slim Jim is. But for Randy Savage, it was apparently the money he brought in with his Slim Jim deal was enough to cover what WCW paid for him in salary. So that's a pretty significant deal. I was mm. going to, I was going to save this for the main event, but I might as well put it in now. Cause yeah, as, as you said, that, you know, he brought, he, when he went from WWF to WCW, he brought the Slim Jim deal with him. But, Seeing as this whole event is sponsored by Slim Jim, is that how Savage got? Did he get the main event because of Slim Jim? Was there? A, I think because there was a, they were well, sponsoring the show. The main, obviously, this main event was going to be run at some point. Hogan turned on Savage. It's the big crux of storyline. They're two massive stars, and even though it has been done before in WWE, um, obviously they, they've actually. This is the only time, in my opinion, that they actually gave. Hogan versus Savage, enough freshness, enough legs to run it again themselves. So it was going to happen, but apparently, yes, um, Slim Jim pulled some strings. I'm not, I'm not sure who to cite for this, but I did read it somewhere. But they obviously had the deal to sponsor Halloween Havoc, and they pulled rank and said, we want their match to happen at our show. So... Because it could have easily been right. Starcade two months later. This would have easily yeah. been a Starcade style event. Uh, but also, I believe uh, we're covering a lot of this main event stuff. So that just leaves more time when we get to the main event. We can talk about what a five star classic that was. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> also, Savage was on the verge of leaving WCW at this point. He had a few weeks left to run his contract and he was very much looking to maybe get a good deal out of WWE to return. But yeah, so a combination of Slim Jim wanting everything all in on their event where they've got the branding everywhere and the fact that maybe they couldn't run Hogan Savage at Starcade for all they knew, that seems to have brought us here. And this was the start, really, if you think about it. This was where Halloween Havoc became a marquee event for those. Before this, it it was a gimmick show. Uh, it was one of their pay-per-views, but it was never it was never up to the level of a Super Bowl, Great American Bash or Starcade. But to Bischoff's credit, he took it to Vegas, and for a few years, he made it one of their biggest events. Mm, definitely, yeah. Okay, so um, we then have um, Ted DiBiase up in the crowd. They have got a uh, an NWO entrance and interview area up in the crowd. Uh, the giant 
is uh, then makes his way through the crowd to the ring. Tony Schiavone's at pains to emphasize that this is not a US title bout. The Giants stole the belt from Ric Flair. Um, Nick Patrick's our referee again. It, it is, for me, it's odd to see Jarrett, Jarrett as a face because I think I'm so much more used to him as a heel and he's so much better as a heel. Um, Flair comes out then to a, a, a much bigger pop than Jarrett. Uh, they do some big man, little man spots. Every time Jarrett throws across the ring, he gets thunderous baby face pop, even though he's meant to be the heel. But this was the NWO heyday where they were cool and new. Um Jarrett's offense gets cut off with an awesome-looking big boot, which Jarrett sells perfectly, and he then nearly gets bent in half on an over-the-knee backbreaker. Um, Flair gets the microphone, starts coaching Jarrett over the PA system. Drink. And, and, the, <laughs> and the crowd seemed torn because they wanted to cheer for Flair, and they wanted to cheer for the NWO as well. Um, one thing that was incredible was Jarrett landed a standing drop kick on the Giants' jaw. Um, he attempted to slam Giant, who lands on top of Jarrett for a two count. Um, and then outside the ring, Giant goes to choke slam Jarrett on the outside. Flair low blows him in front of Nick Patrick for a, a very underwhelming DQ finish. And the horsemen of uh, Anderson, Benoit, and Steve Michael join Flair in the ring as the Giant retreats. Uh, what do you think of this one, Mike? This is a strange one to have to try and follow. Malenko and Mysterio and DDP and Guerrero, when you take into account at this time in his career, right, the giant is is very, very limited. They're trying to protect him, but he's still quite new. And I'm of the opinion that, especially in this era, Jeff Jarrett really, he's got one match that he can hang his hat on, and that was at In Your House with Shawn Michaels. There's not another remarkable Jeff Jarrett match, in my opinion, and this one on paper just doesn't look like a good matchup. The crowd has been rejecting Jarrett since his arrival. And you know they're aware of that because of how hard they're utilizing Ric Flair to get a reaction for him. And it just seems like it's not working. So to follow two matches that are so well-wrestled, so exciting, so intense, and then follow it with this. And, and this is a great example of um, seeing the practical exemplification of a criticism of Jeff Jarrett in this era, which was Jeff Jarrett had one gear and he wrestles this match in that one gear. It wouldn't matter if he was against someone bigger than him or smaller than him. If it was a blood feud, if it was a regular match, he had one gear and that's how this felt. Um, and it was fairly lame, uninteresting offense where the character relationship that had been written for the day had been flipped by the audience and the performers just couldn't set it right. Yeah, I've, the weird thing for me about this match is it really shows the... kind of continuing on from what you said, it's, it's the catch-22 of Jeff Jarrett, really, in that I actually really liked him wrestling as a babyface here. He, you know, he's got a lot of experience as a babyface from his upbringing in, in like, Memphis and that. Um, yeah, it's um, yeah. Yeah, and I think the pairing in that sense helps in that you, you, you've got someone in the Giant who, natural hill, for whatever experience, levels and limitations, it's very easy for the Giant to, to be a big intimidating hill. And it's it's almost like Jarrett felt a lot more natural uh, running around the Giant and, and doing the elusive thing. And as a result, I really liked his work here. I That's the thing about... Like the, the Jeff Jarrett we got for years to come, who won many world titles, that a lot of diehard wrestling fans are, are 
you know don't really want to give much credit to under various circumstances is a I don't think he's a great heel wrestler and the the one example Mike gives um the in your house with Shawn Michaels he's well he's in there with Shawn Michaels so those two can really again it's a it's a bricks and mortar thing with Jeff J very much a mortar guy very solid worker uh but as far as his own talents go oh, he always stood out to me more as a bayface he just never got that chance to do it because as you said he's just not a likable babyface and I really want to convince myself that WCW and Eric Bischoff had a plan here I like when I'm being at my most optimistic I like to convince myself that what we got a year later with Kurt Hennig turning on the horseman in the War Games cage was a similar sort of thing to where they were going with Jarrett where he was going to shit on the horseman big time and and join uh, the new world order because he weren't being loved enough or something like that. It had all done because if you watch the promo that Dean talked about earlier, he's doing everything he was doing in the WWE as JE double F, haha. You know, he's got a little laugh, a little smug look. He he looks like someone who's been who has been told by mandate to be a simmering hill in in babyface clothing, but it never really went. They kind of just trod water with it. So maybe they were trying to get him over his baby face, realised that it weren't working in that respect. Maybe they had this big plan and they lost interest when they realised they could get Kurt Hennig or they just lost interest because, let's face it, the Monday Night Wars attention spans were not great. But it feels like something better was was to come out of this and it never did. So with the benefit of hindsight, it just... it looks bad in a lot of ways, whereas at the time, it really should have been better. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that Jarrett wasn't necessarily a, a likable babyface. I think when he was in, in the regionals, in like world class and that kind of thing in, in Tennessee, as you know, the smiling, long, blonde hair babyface, it it worked there. But I, I just thought he was such a, a better heel. And yeah, it was his wrestling I, that made him a great babyface. Yeah. But his personality was disingenuous. He was good at being disingenuous. So because he had the skills of one side in one area and the skills he never really was able to find that package yeah um yeah i mean the other the other thing i was gonna i was gonna ask you mike was you know with someone like the giant putting putting aside the 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 greenness but when you know when you're when you're in the ring or when you're either as a wrestler or or as a, a a booker i guess when you've got a guy that big surely there's a limited amount of things you can you can do with that guy in the ring. Well, I suppose that's true. Um, but something that struck me when this whole pay-per-view was over, and um, and I, I just finished re-watching it yesterday, so it's kind of very fresh in my mind, was generally speaking, there's nothing really out of the box on this pay-per-view. Like, it, it, its booking is very paint-by-numbers. And... You know, one of the many things that plagued WCW in this time was how many people had creative control over direction, angles, finishes. You know, there were too many cooks in the kitchen. And I think maybe they were all arguing about exactly how Hulk Hogan is is or is not going to win or lose. And there wasn't enough creativity being done in other places. There's certainly more could have been done here. Even, even though the Giant is relatively inexperienced, you know, a, a robust booking team or a really crafty writer could have come up with something more intriguing than this, but it does seem like they're not paying enough attention. That 
the very next segment after this match, the Ted DiBiase interview with Six, they basically repeat each other's lines. They talk about Chris Jericho is a fine young athlete, and then DiBiase hands the microphone off. Chris Jericho is a fine young athlete. And the commentators want you to know, Chris Jericho is a fine young athlete. Drink. Um, it was as if nobody was paying attention to the mid-card. Mm. Yeah, and we've we've discussed at length on this show, and you know, for as long as we're covering WCW, we're going to bring it up again. Kevin Sullivan, who for the most part was one of the main figures on the booking, because they usually did a booking committee, didn't they? But Kevin Sullivan's usually the head guy, one of the main guys, and he was always pretty much a Trojan horse for Hogan to get his way. And I saw that Eric Bischoff AMA very recently, where someone asked him about. Hogan getting his own way and you know in his usual way he goes yeah, and he's done this a few times before Bischoff goes you know, it's, it's always greatly exaggerated but I'm telling you the truth Hulk Hogan only ever used the full power of his creative control clause once and that was with Sting at Starcade 97 and I think he's telling the truth but he's using that wording very carefully because if Hulk Hogan comes in and says I want this I want that I want to disregard those guys and not care about those and someone like Kevin Sullivan immediately does that, he doesn't have to exercise the creative control clause. So yeah, it's only when those with a say-so are in absolute disagreement that he actually has to play the card. So it's very possible that he only played it once, but he definitely got his own way. He definitely had a booking team that were disregarding things like this. And I'm glad you brought that up, Mike, about the NWO entrance. I'll keen to see what you guys thought. I loved it as a concept, the way they came in through their little outsider entrance. Still, at this point, still keeping that, that edgy element to them. But it was sad to see Ted DiBiase, who such a, a gifted orator, and mm-hmm. some, someone who, you know, in in this situation, he's actually been hired to be the guy who ties things together verbally for the NWO. And I think they got better. He did a few of these, basically before every NWO match on the card. And the latter one, the, the last one with Hogan, maybe the one... Be, I feel like the tag title one was also quite good, but... The first two here, with with the six match that comes up and the giant match we've just covered, he sounded nothing like the Ted DiBiase we know love. He sounded so awkward, so laboured. And I I think Mike's point has merit, and yet it's funny how later on the show suddenly found that fire and he was talking a lot better and he was putting things over and yet not sounding so scripted. He, He did a much better job of putting over the threat of Harlem Heat while also... You know, bigging up the NWO, he he's he stepped it up in his last two little segments. But it was weird to see just how bad it was here. Yeah, I can't help but wonder. You know, part of what precipitates DiBiase uh, where he's at right now in wrestling is that injury that occurred right when he's wrestling in All Japan Pro Wrestling, and he's he's not physical in the ring anymore, right? They've transitioned him into another role, uh, including he did a brief stint commentating with WWF. If he has a very serious neck injury, and at the time, what they were doing with presenting the NWO interviews like out in the crowd, that was new in American oh. wrestling. If if he was constantly being like jostled or slapped by fans and there's not adequate security out there, a guy with a serious neck injury, I'd imagine, is feeling like, what are we doing out here? Like, this is not the pro wrestling that I came up in or my father, right? His dad was a wrestler, yeah. Iron Mike DiBiase, right? Like... I can imagine for a lot of guys that came up under traditional wrestling um, 
establishments, what was going on with the NWO as anti-hero cool heels and cutting promos standing out in the audience without adequate security, all of that must have felt very alienating to DiBiase. And maybe that's why he just wasn't in a position to do his best work. That's a really fair point. And, you know, the great thing with the NW at this this point was that, uh, yeah, okay, we, we knew that in reality they were all signed to contracts, but, you know, that the the internet was was in its infancy. So a lot of people could very well still think, you know, be thinking that these were, you know, WWF invaders. And at this point in time, it was a small number of people. And with the exception of the, the giant who joined, I think it was something like 23 days after losing the world title to, to Hogan, every member of that group was a former WWF contacted talent. Um, so, it, you know, they really did do an excellent job, um, better than the New Japan did with UWFI, which was the, the inspiration, but they did such a great job of presenting them as proper outsiders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it felt very authentic. And uh, a, f- a friend of mine used to have Monday Nitro watching parties every Monday night. Like the sort of thing on Nitro that Lee Marshall would go out and visit and sometimes give you like a WCW prize pack. A friend of mine religiously held one every Monday night. And among the people that were there as casual wrestling fans, it really was the only thing they cared about. Who is going to be the next WWF invader to show up and join the NWO? And that just fueled their interest and is one of, you know, a handful of factors that saw him pull ahead in the Monday Night Wars for the whatever that was, that famous 82 weeks, is it? Yeah, 82 weeks. 83 weeks, I believe, because Bischoff only went and got his own podcast, didn't he? And named mm. it after that. And then any any time, uh, spoiler any time someone asks him about an 83-week period, he says, I can't really remember. So that was a great Jeez. idea, mate. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, Mike, I, I remember, I mean... Um, you and I are the same age. I remember, you know, this at this time, you know, I, I was at university and I would be getting tapes of this sent to me by um, by friends. And if I had any any of the fellow students come into the, the house I lived in and they would see Hulk Hogan and realize that he was he was a villain, mm. uh, he was a heel that their their jaws dropped to the floor because they might not know much about wrestling, but they knew who Hulk Hogan was and they knew he was the all American hero. And it was like, Hulk Hogan's turned bad. It's like, what, you know, what can I trust in the world anymore? (laughs) Yeah, it really, it, it, it fueled casual fan interest in a way that other angles really didn't. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so let's so let, let's move on to the next match, and this is one that really was looking forward to. Six, so Sean Walkman um, against Chris Jericho, and Jericho at this point in time is he's a full fledged white meat babyface, which you know in retrospect, knowing what he's done, the great things he's done, it's hilarious to watch. In, in he's hindsight. a fine young athlete, apparently. He is, he is a fine young athlete. Yeah, did you guys pick up on that? I don't know if anybody mentioned it. I, I, I did, got... but then I got really bombed on this drinking game I was doing. um the commentators talk about the outsiders the nwo versus wcw the horsemen nick patrick and the dungeon of doom who are shown at ringside and basically talk about anything but the actual match that's going on right in front of them as six and jericho are going all out to put on a fantastic pay-per-view quality match um six takes control after a flip plancher to the outside the commentators now start paying attention 
Um, he hits some of his impressive looking kicks. Jericho comes back with a tope con Hilo and a flying back elbow off the top. Uh, Jericho counters a six top rope cross body block with a mid-air drop kick, which always looks really impressive. Uh, Jericho goes for a pin, but Nick Patrick is very slow to count, clutching his neck as the crowd boo him. Um, another pinfall attempt gets a slow count, and then Six hits a spin kick and gets a rapid three count for Nick Patrick, who just happens to be positioned right in the corner where the action has just happened. Uh, six wins, storyline finish, but a, a great fast-paced match, action all the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this one really reminded me of how outstanding Sean Waltman could be. Sometimes he was saddled with stuff that just, you know, it kind of uh, prevented him from doing his very best work. And this was a scenario where you got to see how very effective he could be. And for a while, especially to my generation of viewers who loved him as the one, two, three kid, getting used to him in the villain role was a bit of an adjustment. Mm. And Jericho in this at this stage, right, like the fans are not 100 percent with him. Like they're having a little hard time. He, he's like the, the classic prototypical clean cut baby face. He's a handsome guy with a full head of blonde hair and he looks great. And yet with the change that was going on in wrestling in terms of taste and sensibility ushered in by the NWO. Well, now what we think of as a prototypical baby face of the character we might cheer is changing. And I think that that caused a little bit of a struggle for Jericho. And in addition to the fact they both went out there and really just, man, they, they were working hard. The little things Nick Patrick was doing, a facial expression or the way he would suddenly remember that there was a twinge of pain in his neck. Like he was an excellent complimentary player in this. And I, I, I agree with that. I, I also know Dean has his <laughs> his reservations, about, but that's mostly when he's actually having to sell wrestling moves. Right, Dean? Oh, yeah, Nick Patrick, when he actually has a cell taking a bump, he's rigid. Earl, he's, he is Earl <laughs> Hebner rigid, yeah. It's funny you should mention that, because do you remember that Earl Hebner-Nick Patrick match they had at Invasion? I, I can't uh, say I do. Don't no. ever track it down. Do not ever track it down. Basically, this, this was when WWE bought WCW. They did that big Invasion pay-per-view that showed everyone just how much of a, a disappointment this whole storyline was going to be. And that was one of the matches they decided to run. It was refer- head referee versus head referee. And yet, yeah, don't ever watch it. Just please do not. Um, it's funny you guys say about white meat babyface Jericho. This Watching this match, particularly watching the start of it, before the bell rings, reminds me of, he, I don't know if you've read his first book, where he mentions when the penny dropped for him where he really needs to get a bit more of an edge of personality in WCW, was when he's got this theme tune at the moment, where it's not his even Mm. flow ripoff that he would get. He's got this very generic good guy uh, theme tune. And there was at some point, I'm not sure where it is on the timeline, but there's at some point, given that he was lobbying heavily in late 97 to Turnhill, I'm guessing it was around then, that he was flicking through channels on on American cable TV and came across just this... You get this... On the sports channels, you get the filler stuff, like just basketball. I think he said it was basketball highlights. And they were using his theme. So it was public domain stock music. 
And that's for, for him, that's when a penny dropped that if he has stuff like this in his repertoire, this is him on TV, he mm. wasn't going to make it. And it's a really interesting passage that book. And yeah, case in point, he comes out to this. This match, oh, for me, this is a very good match one of a series. It's a great act one of a, a story that's to yet to unfold and you know you you two guys have have, have had experience booking shows and you I, I believe you've both done that where you've had to spread something out across multiple events and I, I like this match for what it gave us and what it promised to give us going forward but again much like a few other things in this show hindsight proves that wrong because if I remember correctly up next for Jericho was actually wrestling Nick Patrick with one arm tied behind his back. <laughs> With one arm tied behind his back. Yeah. Yes. Right. When I'd have loved to have seen these two guys have a or, or you have a thing maybe where six wins the cruiserweight title and you know NWO dominate the belts, but um, Jericho then chases him. With a blatantly heel referee, Nick Patrick, all the odds stacked up against him. There's there's a lot of ways you can spin this, but this for me, this is a sort of match that makes me want more, not in a bad way, but because we know that's not how it went. I believe they did wrestle more in WCW, but not in the way it could have been structured. It really was missed opportunity. Well, let's have a drinking game for missed opportunity, shall we? I'm I'm really coming across like an alcoholic. I apologise for that. It's- <laughs> He's not an alcoholic. It's just this is what us Brits are like, Mike. You know, we like WCW drove me to alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> People ask me, they're like, "How about Liam? Is he much of a critic?" I said, "No, he's an alcoholic." Yeah, uh, got me spot on. <laughs> the Sam, the Sam man stole his shtick from me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after that match, uh, Mike today interviews Lex Luger, who looks like he's just woken up, or at least his hair does. Um, and Luger's talking up the match with Arn Anderson, and this Liam, this is all come about from the fallout of the WCW team losing the War Games at Four Brawl to the NWO. It is, and I, I did like this. Is kind of like a filler feud between he and Arn that I really appreciated. And there's a lot of uh, depth to this. I'll get into, but first, what a fucking promo by Alex Luger! What a brilliant, for all the wrong reasons, promo where he has gone out there and he's just run through a bunch of fucking cliches. Then he's run out of cliches and waffled on until he's got to the end that he probably wasn't sure when that was coming. Watch it again. It's so glorious. I could watch that on loop. It's better than Larry Zabisco on Fundle, though I like Larry Zabisco on Fundle in a good way. Uh, this is just... This is just, so bad it's good promo wise and yeah have a drinking game for his cliches that'll get you done in about 30 seconds flat yeah he makes a really weird illusion about cactus and thicket in the middle yeah. of this one and i thought i've never heard that in a wrestling promo before uh we need we need to get a written transcript i'm gonna stick it in the uh the podcast episode description i think description yeah, yeah. luger's luger's promos were, it was blessing it was he was never famous for his promos apart from that independent promo he did where he completely lost his train of thought and forgot the name of the promotion and forgot the name of the event if you remember that vaguely, yeah Yes. Uh, but anyway, so so let's uh, move on to uh, Anson v. Luger. Now I've got to say, I, I love watching Arn Anson. He's absolutely one of my all-time favourites, um, so I'm very biased here. But um, Anson starts off with some deliberate, well-placed offence to Luger. 
Um, Luger then makes his own comeback by no selling a move and then just firing himself up and takes over on Anderson, who is one of the best sellers in the business. And it's great because looking at the two of them physically, you'd think, well, Anderson's got, not got a prayer against Luger, but the, the offense he puts in is very well thought out. It's very deliberate. It's very not sneaky, but just intelligent offense, I guess I'd say. Um, but then, yeah, Anderson is coming unstuck at every move of Luger's until he catches him with his trademark spine buster. Uh, both men are down at this point. He then charges at Luger from behind, knocking Luger to the floor, uh, where someone squirts their drink onto Luger's prone body. Um, for a third match out of five, a wrestler gets whipped into the... Yeah, this, this was something that got me. For the third match out of five, a wrestler got whipped into the guardrail in the exact same place. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why. It, can't, it surely can't be a coincidence that they're all choosing that particular spot. Slim Jim product placement. Was there a Slim Jim thing there? Um, possibly, but the reason I would suggest that is because they were definitely using the... Do you know they had those big elaborate ring posts? Or ring posts, I suppose. They they, they just looked a lot more imposing yeah. than your typical old-school WWF small yeah. fin ring posts. They had the big boxing-style ring post, you could say, I suppose. And they were making a lot of references to guys hitting those, and the commentators would immediately say Slim Jim five times. And yeah, that's another drink. Yeah, but the, yeah, this was yeah, this was the guardrail that they're going into. I don't know, it's, it's, it's strange. But anyway, it's, it's a it's speculation on my part. It's the only thing I can think of if they're going yeah. for a specific. Maybe there's a you know if, if if that's getting the you know in the same way a lot of wrestlers are taught to play to the hard cam or play to certain cameras in an interview if they're looking for a certain angle because yeah, it's just an idea. I've I no idea. Yeah. Just, I mean, it's a good, I suppose it's a good spot for the camera to pick things up. But um, anyway, and Anderson goes for his DDT. Luger holds onto the top rope. But then Luger goes on the offense. Referee Mark Curtis gets squashed in the corner. Anderson grabs a chair. He swings at Luger but misses and he hits the ring post. That's the uh, Slim Jim ring post, Liam. The Slim Jim um, ring post? The Slim Jim ring post. Ring Slim post. Jim? That's, yeah, that's Isn't it sponsored by Slim Jim? The Slim Jim Ring Post. Yeah, because the show's sponsored by Slim Jim, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah, uh, wrestlers are, uh, they're, they're snapping into that ring post. Snapping you know? into Slim Jim, yeah, Slim Jim, yeah, Slim Jim, yeah, Slim, Jim Slim, Slim Jim, Slim Jim, Slim Jim. Fucking Pepper Army! <laughs> Anderson then gets catapulted uh, into said ring post, but he takes it. This is what I love about Arn Anderson. He takes the ring post shot shoulder first, meaning he doesn't have to do that horribly obvious thing of putting his hand up. Um, Luger then clubs Anson over the back with the chair as Mark Curtis comes round. Anson puts Luger in the torture. Sorry, Luger puts Anderson in the torture act to pick up the win. Luger then refuses to release the hold for about 30 seconds afterwards. Um, a basic match that goes because you never get anything that special from Luger, but Anson made him look good. Um, Flair comes down afterwards, looks very concerned. Arn Anson does a stretcher job. Uh, Mike, what did you think of this one? There is so much about this match, guys. Uh, this was what I was thinking from the promo forward. There are two conditions under which you don't feel like going to the ring, right? Your music's playing and you realize, oh, I should have gone to the bathroom. I needed to visit the toilet before I go to the ring. That's a horrible feeling. Or you're having a hair day like Lex Luger is having. (laughs) You do not want to go out in front of 10,000 live fans and a pay-per-view audience with hair like that. And then you know that you must. And I thought this was really weird. I don't know if you have any relationship to this actress. Bobby Heenan says Lex Luger reminds him 
of a movie star and then name drops Phyllis Diller. Does that name mean anything to two Brits? Nope. I've lost count of as much as I love Bobby Heenan, I've lost count of how many times I've had to go to Google and Wikipedia when he makes his references on commentary. He yeah. he she was is... his comedic time was brilliant, but he was a little dated with his references. Yeah, you're not kidding. Phyllis Diller was a comedian who got famous on radio in America in the 1950s, and her <laughs> starring role in movies was over by 1968. Jesus. So, so that's a really dated reference um, to try and grab that. This match also made me realize how good Mark Curtis is. Oh, yeah. Uh, he is exactly where he's meant to be at exactly the right time. And when he's not, you never notice him. He's invisible. And that's like the exact traits that you want in a referee. He's just so good. Arn Anderson is so good. Um, like when, unfortunately for Lex Luger, when he hooks Arn Anderson up out on the floor, he does not position his knees correctly to do the catapult. And so Arn Anderson, effectively, to keep it from falling apart at that moment, has to catapult himself into the Slim Jim-sponsored Slim Jim's Halloween Havoc corner post sponsored by Slim Jim's. Um, like that Arn, Slim Jim? Arn Anderson just does all of the work there. So you just get to see, you know, what, like what all the workhorses are doing. Um, that really stuck out to me. And, and I, I, I feel like I'm deliberately stepping around something. I want to tell you guys a personal Lex Luger story of mine, if oh, I please may. please do. Hold on, I'll just go and get the popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> so, several years ago, uh, we told a story at Chikara that was meant as a love letter to the whole Lex Express yes. saga from right. the summer of 93. And this involved uh, one of our wrestlers, Green Ant, who actually did have his arm broken. It, it, that was not what we wanted, of course, but an accident happened in the ring. His arm was broken. And similar to what they purported happened to Lex Luger, he had a metal plate put in his arm. So using these similarities, we devised a story, and we rented this giant caravan-like um, recreational vehicle and toured around just like the Lex Express, right. leading up to Green Ant uh, facing a super heavyweight whose character could possibly have been described as an amalgam of Yokozuna and Ludwig Borga. He was a Scandinavian super heavyweight character of ours. And I thought, you know what would make this really special is when the caravan finally pulls up the day of the match and Green Ant gets off that caravan, we should have Lex Luger get off with him. <laughs> like, that's the thing that's going to make this awesome. And I've never been afraid to play... Um, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. So I started calling people and I said, do you know how to get a hold of Lex Luger? And it probably took me a dozen phone calls to finally get Lex Luger's phone number. But as I was playing this game, this is what I heard every step of the way. Um, I tell this story in part because uh, I feel like it's rare that you hear stories of this type told about Lex Luger. And yet this is part of who this man is. Every step of the way, I was told, even by people who said they were friends of his, you don't want to talk to Lex Luger. You do not want to ask him this question. Um, he's not going to want to hear you out. He's not going to hear, want to hear what you have to say. He is definitely not coming to some rinky-dink independent wrestling event to help you out. You might as well forget it. He's a self-obsessed jerk. Like, that whole narcissist gimmick he was given was not really a gimmick at all. That is how he saw himself. 
But because I am the way that I am, I thought, well, the heck with it. I'm still calling him. So I did. I rang up Lex Luger and I got him on the phone and I explained it to him the way I just explained it to you. This is a love letter that we're writing to the Lex Express storyline. And he said to me, I'm so flattered that you want to do this. I can't I can't believe that anybody wants to pay tribute to that or that you even remember it. That was such an important thing to me. And I feel like people remember it as a failure. People remember that experiment as like, oh, that time that they got it wrong or that time that Lex Luger was a flop. And I'm really moved. Um, And I said, well, here's what I want. I want you to get off the bus. I want you to come off the bus with Green Ant. And he said, I want you to know um, I suffered a spinal stroke in the last six months. And I cannot walk without the assistance of a walker. And I wouldn't want fans to see me like this. Like, I don't even look like my old self. I'm, I can't work out. Um, I'm a shell of my former self. And to be honest, I'd be embarrassed for wrestling fans to see me hobble down steps with a walker. I'm not even sure I could do it safely. And I thought this was like a really a moment of great humility for Lex Luger. And I said, well, I understand, of course. And thank you for being upfront with me about it. And before I hung up, he said, is there something else I could do to help? Like to make this special. Wow. And my knee jerk reaction was, would you film something for us? Would you shoot a promo like endorsing Green Ant and calling out the analogy to the Lex Express? And he said, I'll do it today. You'll have it tomorrow. Just send me your email address. I'll get it done. So after I got off with him, I remembered all the phone calls that I'd had along the way tracking Lex Luger down. And I thought, maybe this promo is not coming. Right. Like maybe he was humoring me on the phone call because maybe he doesn't get called a lot anymore. But maybe this guy, you know, really doesn't care. And that's that. But the next morning in my inbox, I had this video and he put on one of his old all-American looking outfits. He even held up the like the Lex Express commemorative action figure and was like, I'm this guy. I'm Lex Luger and Green Ant. I once had to go up against insurmountable odds, but I believed in myself and I believe in you too. And this Saturday at Chikara, I want you to do this, this, and this. And I was blown away. I was just blown away that this guy sent me this thing. So of course, as soon as I got it, I called him and I said, hey, I got the file. It works great. The, we're going to release it to YouTube this afternoon. Thank you for doing this. You know, you don't have to do this. You don't, you don't even know me. And you, you barely know, you know what's going on other than 10 minutes. We talked about it on the phone. And I said to him, I know your time is valuable. Do, can I send you something for the time you spent doing this? A couple bucks or something. What would you like? And he said, no, I'm just happy to help out. Thank you. What strikes me about all that is my interaction with Lex Luger was so contrary to everything I've ever been told about him. And he had no reason to do any of that other than to show kindness to us. So whenever I get the chance, I like to tell people about that story with Lex Luger because I feel like that side of him is a side people don't know. That is, that is an amazing story. And, yeah. and do you know what? When when you said I've got a story about Lex Luger, I thought it was going to be him being a prick, <laughs> and that is that has blown me away. That is that is an amazing story. Right on. It's worth noting that in in a especially in the wrestling industry, and a lot in what because I, I do cover some wrestling, but I predominantly cover general sports as a journalist. There's a there's a lot of these aspects of life where you hear a lot of 
negative stories about people and what always gets left out of the negative stories you find when you hear them often enough is what leads up to the moment where someone rubs someone up the wrong way and the people telling the stories very often leave out the fact that they and 10,000 other people come up to that person very much the same way not in a particularly nice way either i mean you think of the stories you hear about wrestlers being like horrible at airports but the people leave out that they shoved a, an autograph thing in their face that they plan on selling on ebay uh mm-hmm. there's these situations and as you i think the crucial thing that you mentioned there to me mike was the fact that you brought up what a lot of people laugh at because it didn't work but this aspect of his you know and people say yeah he has an ego hey we all have egos and but you have it's it sounds like you've you've appealed to a part of his ego that was probably a little dented because he was going to be the big guy and this and this big campaign didn't go how they went its plan and and you're one of those guys who said you know i, I enjoyed that and I've been there so many times when I've had to speak to complete strangers as a journalist to interview them, because I always try to make sure I don't come across as uh, mainstream media interviewer number 67. It's better from a work perspective, and it's, be- it's better from a human being perspective, and that's a shining example. It's really nice to hear that people are still doing that, as soppy as that sounds. Yeah, sometimes it's easy to forget... Um... You know, Lex Luger might live in some people's minds like nothing more than an action figure, you know. Um, and yet I, I felt like I was lucky enough to see a very human side of him. And uh, I, I know I, I'm talking way too much here, guys, but I've got a weird Arn Anderson story, too, if you're up for it. Uh, no, look, we, we've got a famous professional wrestler on our shitty little podcast that's been going six <laughs> months. You, sir, talk as long as you want. Okay, Mike, just before you get to that Arn Anderson story, just want to tell uh, everyone about some events that are going on. Our friends at Kayfabe Events um, have got two evenings with Jimmy Havoc. If you are listening to this very shortly after it's been released, you'll be just in time because uh, we have got two nights, 25th of May at the Brunswick in Holland Road in Hove. Uh, That's Friday the 25th of May. Um, it's not only an evening with Jimmy Havoc, but followed up with a DJ set from the man himself, believe it or not. And then on Saturday, the 26th of May, we're in uh, Manchester at the Chetham Library in Long Millgate. Um, those evenings will both be very different. They're hosted by myself, Jimmy Havoc, a man I know very well who has lots and lots of stories. And then a little while later, it's the big one. We have got Brett the Hitman Hart, four nights across the country, Tuesday the 5th of June in my hometown of Brighton, Wednesday the 6th of June. Oh, that's, that's at the uh, Brighthelm Centre on North Road where the Riptide Wrestling run their shows. Uh, Wednesday the 6th of June at Portland House in Butte Street in Cardiff. Thursday the 7th of June, at the Queen Elizabeth Hall West Street in Oldham where actually Bret Hart wrestled a TV match for World of Sport in 1981 believe it or not and then Friday the 8th of June um, is in London at Bush Hall um, in Shepherd's Bush I believe you'll be going to the London event Liam all going well for all of five minutes when I then promptly get kicked out for being far too much of an aggressive fanboy towards Bret Hart excellent and uh, then we are also, my, my, my other gig, the commentary gig, uh, IPW will be live on IWN on the International Wrestling Network. The next big, big show is on the 22nd of July from the uh, casino rooms in Rochester. Fight for your right, featuring special guests 
Hurricane Shane Helms, UFC star Filthy Tom Lawler, and Impact Wrestling star Chelsea Green. And then after that, we'll be talking about this uh, nearer time, but we've got a fantastic anniversary weekend on the 22nd and 23rd of September featuring guests from Pro Wrestling Noah. Talking of the IWN International Wrestling Network, there's still a little bit of time. Uh, if you're a, a listener of this podcast, you can get a 20% discount um, on the IWN subscription. It expires on the 13th of June. Uh, just type in 20 because WCW, that's two zero because WCW, no spaces, all capitals, and you'll get yourself a 20% discount um, off the price for six months. The code expires on the 13th of the 6th. Okay, Mr. Quackenbush, the floor is yours. Arn Anderson. Yes. So not all that long ago, there was a change to the policy that the WWE had regarding some of their agents, like Dean Malenko and Arn Anderson, where they are now allowed to go out and teach, which for a long time that was not possible. You couldn't hire them to teach a seminar, but now you can. And so I immediately investigated what went into bringing Arn Anderson to the Wrestle Factory specifically to teach tag team psychology. In my opinion, Arn Anderson, if you're making a list of greatest tag team wrestlers of all time, you can start with Arn Anderson. Um, I, I don't know who you would start with if not Arn Anderson. So uh, as it turned out, we just couldn't get him. You know, the, the circumstances surrounding bringing him made it impossible to get Arn Anderson. But I thought at the end of this dialogue with him, it'd be worth mentioning to him. I said, look, I realize I may never meet you in person. We may never speak again. I'm sorry that this didn't work out for us. But I do want you to know that I think tag team wrestling over the years has become a lost art form. And it's a language unto itself. It is not like wrestling a singles match. It is not like wrestling other types of matches. Tag team wrestling is its own language. And I always felt that no one spoke that language more beautifully than you did. If we ever had the chance to sit together over a cup of coffee, I'd love to pick your brain and just ask what some of the secret ingredients you always brought to the way you designed tag team matches might be. And I thought that's probably, you know, the end of the dialogue. But then uh, I, I got an email back from him. And here was a strange quirk that I noticed when he would answer my emails from his WWE corporate iPad that uh, instead of the message being typed into the body of the email, his message would be typed all in the subject line, which was just like a weird quirk, right? Like you can imagine a guy who's getting up there in years and maybe is not all that familiar with the latest iOS on an iPad could mistakenly type his reply in the subject line, right? Like that's not an impossibility. So uh, sure enough, I get an email back from Arn Anderson, which always makes my day when my inbox says you have a message from Arn Anderson. <laughs> so in the subject line is type these words. He says, hey, Mike, thanks so much. I'm, I'm really flattered. Um, as it relates to what you said, I want you to know I always believed this to be the secret of a great tag team match. And then that was all the more that fit in the subject line. Like it reached the maximum capacity of the subject line. But then the body of the email is blank. You know, it just says sent from iPad or whatever. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, Arn Anderson's trying to tell me the secret of tag team wrestling, but it's cut off. So I thought, well, it's got to be over there somewhere, right? Like, maybe can I select and paste it out into a bigger body and it will reveal it to me? So the answer to that is no. 
Then I got Gmail. I got their tech support on the phone. I'm like, is this data in the email somewhere? Like, you can pull it out on your side because the secret to tag team wrestling from the greatest tag team wrestler that ever lived is in here. I this need the, this information. This is the holy grail of tag team wrestling. Right. Like, I don't have to explain this to you, Google tech support. Get me the information. Where is it? And they're like, no, he reached the maximum number of characters that field can hold. And that's it. There's nothing else. Uh, and I was just out of my mind about this. Uh, so a couple weeks thereafter, I saw my pal Cesaro, who is a graduate of my Wrestle Factory. And I told, I showed him, I was like, look at this. Is this like Arn Anderson pranking me? Is this a rib? And Claudio's like, no, he does this to everybody. He answers in the subject line. Like, that's not a rib. And I'm like, but you see what this is. Uh, so we, the world may never know. <laughs> Oh man, I wish that one had a happier ending. Yeah, I was I was kind of dependent on there being like, oh, he got back to me a few weeks ago and told me this. Oh my god, nope. So I'm gonna have a new <laughs> set of recurring nightmares now. We we have got to find this. We have got to find this somehow via via Twitter. You know, via I mean, I'm I don't know whether it, or via Twitter, via Facebook, whether this is like a Regal or a Brookside or a Johnny Moss or someone. But we, this is going to be our mission. We, we have got to find out the secret of tag team wrestling from Arn Anderson. <laughs> I'm going to be so disappointed when after six months of groundwork, we finally get him to finish his thought. And he says, having really long tag ropes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is this is a mission now. This is absolute mission. We'll 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 get there. Okay, let's go back to uh, Havoc '96. Um, it is time for Meng and the Barbarian, the Faces of Fear versus Steve McMichael and Chris Benoit representing the Horsemen. So the Faces of Fear are accompanied by Jimmy Hart. Steve McMichael is accompanied by his wife Deborah. Uh, Benoit has woman, uh, his fiancée Nancy with him, which you know, obviously uh, with the benefit of hindsight is, is quite disturbing to, to watch. Um, Meng and McMichael charge at each other like animals in the wild. Uh, Barbarian lands some big chops on Benoit, who sells the bigger man's offense tremendously. But the crowd are just kind of dead for this at the moment. It's really it's a filler match before the big guns come out to play. In one great spot, which does pop the crowd, Barbarian makes the blind tag in. Meng backdrops Benoit into a powerbomb position for Barbarian to slam Benoit down with force. Uh, Barbarian later launches Benoit three quarters of the way across the ring with a belly-to-belly -belly suplex where both men are standing on the top rope, which just looks absolutely spectacular. Uh, Barbarian hits a vertical suplex and Meng comes off the top rope with a splash, but referee Mark Curtis is busy getting Barbarian out of the ring, so Michael eventually seems to miss his cue a bit, pulls Benoit out of the ring, nails Meng over the head with his Halliburton briefcase, uh, Benoit then lands the diving headbutt for the win. Um, the last two moves, getting hit over the head with a steel case and the diving headbutt, are very uneasy watching with, with 2018 eyes. Um, and then the Dungeon of Doom, who've been sat at ringside, uh, which is Sullivan, Big Bubba and Conan, they hop the rail, they attack the horseman at the end. The rest of the horsemen are nowhere to be seen, so that explains Arn Anderson's stretch job. Yep. Um very weird to see Kevin Sullivan taunting woman as he lays the boots into Benoit in front of her. Um, Shivani actually comments there's more than meets the eye to this when it comes to the three of them, which obviously there, there certainly was. 
filler match or spectacular? Wow. That's that's a tough one because um, it, it's fairly well wrestled, even with Mongo in the mix. I know that's a strange thing to be saying. Yeah. Um, however, uh, I cannot get around how eerie it feels. And I'm certain that since 2007, I have never gone back and watched a match where Benoit and woman are together on camera. And something about that just cast such a shadow over it that, and I like the Mangan Barbarian, you know, I, 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 I like both those guys, the faces of fear. I like that tag team. Um, I like watching them chuck dudes around and just generally seemed, they just, they ooze everything about wrestling, right? They are intense. You believe every movement that they make. They tell the story with their faces. They tell their faces with their, they tell the story with their body language. They're just such consummate pros, um, and I wanted to enjoy it, but I, I couldn't. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with you two there. Uh, yeah, if I like what this match is, and let's face it, not every match can be a show stealer or a main event or even properly great. This is a match between guys they want to feature who put are putting out great moves, and yeah, that belly-to-belly superplex, well, that super throw, you could even say, was absolutely incredible. But it also brought home another thing about the Benoit factor, other than the presence of woman there in the start. Obviously, uh, Benoit Sullivan had that match at the Bash 96, which opened all his eyes. It was like a a trend-setting brawl. But um, They went to the toilets, didn't they? Yeah, this this was where they were starting to build up the, the soap opera, layers of their feud which well we we know how that went um there there is a lot to this it's a subtle story to like the the dungeon of doom being there like for so many matches cheering on luger against arm just because they hate arm more things like and and then they make the jump in there's a lot of layered storytelling going on on this show in general and in this match um but what got this match for me into an area where i'd say yeah it was worth watching rather than worth skipping in the network era was that chris benoit went out there and bumped like a madman yeah ming ming and barbarian aren't as bad as some people might have you believe mcmichael is fine with guidance as we see you know he has a great hoss battle with experienced big men but then we've covered a couple of his matches already with goldberg and they were hot messes because goldberg wasn't ready and mcmichael's incapable of being a general in the in the ringing aspect uh and benoit is bringing this up to another level with his intensity and his bumping which used to be that thing that was so charming about him and then you just think of of the concussions the cte the brain damage so that's the part that really brought me down i mean i agree with the the woman aspect i i have not watched a whole lot of his of his stuff interacting with women on wcw tv since either but it's always the bumps that get me and i've yeah I've long mentioned the the diving headbutt as being like yeah. the, the move I hate. It's probably the move I hate the most, or or like the least, I should say. Hate's a strong word. And you, the the contrast here, right? Uh, and I'm speaking to two guys, you know, who've, who've taken bumps, had concussions, who've done this, you know, run rings around me as in the industry. But you know, stop me if I'm I'm talking silly here. Um. Barbarian and Ming go up to opposite turnbuckles to go for... I think they did a finish where they used to hit simultaneous diving headbutts. Mm-hmm. They fly up, they come down, and where, they miss this time. But whether they hit or miss, 
the way they land, it's almost like all fours, heads protected, there's no snap on the neck. And Benoit would always just go in like a leap of faith, like, and Dean will get this and Mike won't. But it's like uh, Del Boy falling down the bar and only falls horses. There's no protection. He, he just completely lets himself go. And I've seen him do that to the floor, through tables, onto a, onto a steel chair, on someone's head. And he'd always go unprotected. And the Dynamite Kid would often go unprotected doing that. And that's the big difference there. I've never yeah. liked the move anyway, for my personal preference. I just can't find it as a, as a believable. It makes suspension of disbelief difficult. But watch how Ming and Barbarian at least protect their fucking selves. And that was the uncomfortable thing for me about this. I mean, there's there's a great article. Um, if you uh, Google uh, Ryan Dilbert and diving headbutt, there's a great article by this guy, Ryan Dilbert, about just why people shouldn't use the diving headbutt. I mean, there was um, a young wrestler on a, a show I was working out, a local show where I was working out a few months ago, and, and he used that as, as um, the finishing move. And I just spoke to him afterwards, and I, I kind of said, look, it's entirely up to you. You don't have to listen to me, but if you want to have a long career, uh, you know, and he's a he's a good-looking fella. He's a, he's well put together. He's doing well for himself early early on. I said, yeah, if you want to have a long career, please uh, don't use that move. And I pointed him to that article, and I've seen him a couple of times since, and he hasn't used the move, and I'm hoping he doesn't use it again. But it's yeah, it just it is all very, it, it's very. Uh, well, eerie is, uh, as you said, Mike, eerie is the word. It's just everything is just very uncomfortable with, with 2018 eyes. Yeah. And I think you really hit it on the head, Liam, in that because Benoit is so heavily influenced by Dynamite Kid, and I, I don't think we're saying anything that probably people don't know. It's most evident to you if you've read his book, Pure Dynamite. Dynamite Kid is not the guy who necessarily set the best example for how future wrestlers should perform and behave. And Benoit yeah. idolized him. You know, ben, Benoit modeled himself after him the way he does a snap suplex and the way he does that headbutt are obviously direct tributes to his hero. And in this same match, like you pointed out, you see Meng and Barbarian do headbutts in a completely safe way. And Benoit, because, you know, he chose to emulate Dynamite Kid, was out there destroying himself. And if pure Dynamite's not enough of a cautionary tale, I'm afraid in this day and age, wrestling has no bigger cautionary tale than the one of Chris Benoit. Yeah, certainly, yeah. And do you know, also, just thinking, you know, when we were talking earlier about about Dean Malenko and, and, and how, you know, he was that utility man, I think I might have mentioned this on a previous podcast, Liam, but... Meng, Haku, call him what you want. I can't remember the guy ever being out of work. If he wasn't in one place, he was in another. And, you know, that, that says a lot about what what people thought of him inside the business. Yeah, think about it on this pay-per-view. Malenko, Meng, Barbarian, uh, Arn Anderson, Jeff Jarrett. Uh, 1996 WCW is pointed at as being their peak for talent, mostly because of the, the cruiserweights, the Guerreros, the Jerichos. It's also seen as a star power peak because you they had such a collection, the Hogan's, the Savages, the Pipers, before they overstayed their welcome, when they had that fresh tilt to them, thanks to the New World Order. But it looks like they've also got a peak roster of mortar-to-the-bricks reliable guys. And that never really mm -hmm. gets flagged up, hearkening back to the prime of WCW. 
there are a lot of great dependable hands doing their thing on the underneath on this show alone let alone you know weeks of nitro and other pay-per-views at this point in time mm-hmm. yeah I mean, you know, as someone who's been a, a I'm, I'm not a wrestler, I'm, I'm been a, a manager, I've been a commentator, but obviously, as you alluded to, you know, I've taken a fair few bumps across the years. And, you know, out of everyone I've ever interacted with physically in wrestling, the, the person who was, for me, absolute safest pair of hands that I would literally trust my life with was the late, great Drew McDonald. And, mm. you know, he was someone who never made it, you know, uh, to to the major leagues, but was never, ever out of work um, and was universally respected. And, and you, you, those people are the absolute cornerstones of any wrestling promotion. Yeah, it's a shame he never made it. You know, there's British guys who have made it, not to put those guys down. But, you know, if, if we can get Loch Ness a cup of coffee in WCW, it's a shame Drew McDonald never did. You know, he had such a great scowling heel voice and a menacing look to him. I'd have liked to have seen him show up. Yeah. They, they, they mean, had everyone else on their books at some point. They Yeah, they had they had him they had him do um they had him do a couple of shows um when WCW was over here, he was like, I remember he had a match, a dark, uh, I think a, like a, a match tape for Worldwide. Against... Was he in the moat house with Sid and no. I? No, oh. no, no, no. This was, this was later on. This was when they did TV over here. And I think he did like a, a worldwide match with, with Marcus Alexander Bagwell or Buff Bagwell, whatever he was at the time. But, um, but yeah, it was, yeah, just, just a lovely man. He was, it was out of, yeah, we, we lost him a few years ago and, you know, what in wrestling we get used to losing people, but that was one that really, really did upset me. Um, yeah, he was a great guy. Anyway, let's um, let's move on. Um, so we we go back up to the NWO interview location with Ted DiBiase and his faithful assistant Vincent. Um, DiBiase introduces the challengers for the tag title match: Hall and Nash, the Outsiders, who get a, a huge pop. They are the overwhelming crowd favorites, despite being the heels. Um, so it's the outsiders versus Harlem heat for the world tag team titles. And what's interesting here is that, that it's noticeably that the interest level and the atmosphere is much, much higher than anything that's preceded it. it this, you know, as we said, this was the peak time for WC for, for the NWO angle. And it really has peaked the crowd's interest. Uh, the crowd's interest then get taken away by a fight somewhere in the crowd uh, but then, you know, what they they calm everything calms down, and, and then people uh, are back focused on the match. Um, hauls in for the first few minutes. Nash tags in with his trademark offense, you know, the elbows on the knees in the corner. Harlem Heat are getting plenty of offense in on the challenges, but the crowd pop every time the outsiders have the advantage, and Hall and Nash don't seem all that interested in selling for their opponents either. Uh, the crowd are chanting Razor while Hall's in the ring. I, I guess the WWF couldn't sue an entire audience for theft of intellectual <laughs> property. Um, the match builds up nicely. Harlem Heat hit the ha- Harlem hangover on Hall but like the last match, referee Mark Curtis is deliberately taking an eternity to get the non-legal man out of the ring. Uh, Colonel Parker jumps in the ring for reasons that make no sense, which allows Nash to grab Parker's cane, crack Booker T over the head with it. Hall makes a dazed cover. Curtis counts to three. And the NWO now have the World Heavyweight title and the World Tag Team titles in their possession. This match is... This is really plagued by something that pops up 
throughout WCW. And I love that an episode back or so, you guys had talked about despite WCW, because <laughs> a lot of this undercard is that. Yeah. It is surprisingly good despite WCW. Here, trying to portray the WCW team as the faces in the equation when you have the exceptionally unlikable character of Colonel Robert Parker out there and Sherry, who is typically a heel, and Harlem Heat that don't get those those great reactions, not compared to, like, for example, the Steiner brothers, all of this is just configured incorrectly. And it's flipping the dynamic. You know, we saw that earlier with Jarrett and the Giant, and here it is again even more powerfully. What, what really cements this, though, is, in my opinion, Scott Hall outworks everybody in this match. When he's, when he's hitting the ropes, he is moving as fast as that guy could possibly move, walking around it. He's probably 260. Uh, he looks like a million bucks. He's exactly where he's supposed to be at exactly every moment. And he's trying his best to make Harlem Heat look good, and his own moves look like a million bucks. When you contrast that against you know, the, the very standard issue Kevin Nash offense that he was doing and the weird dynamic on the other team. Scott Hall looks like a superstar in this. Yeah, I mean, I've got to agree. Scott, Scott Hall's work pretty much saved Harlem Heat here and it's not just a hill-faced dynamic. It's worth mentioning, Dean said this is one of the marquee matches. This is, this is probably the second most significant match on the card. And... Harlem Heat at this point, you know, Booker T would go on to become a WWE world champion, uh, a guy at certain points before his world title runs who should have been elevated sooner. Great worker, great starter put near the top. But at this point in time, the tag team as a whole, they were mid-carders. They were, you know, I, I liked Harlem Heat, but they were nowhere near ready for a big marquee match. It just so happened that they had the belts, they went to move them to the outsiders. They weren't ready for this scenario, even if the fans were for them, if they understood the dynamic. Um, and I really felt like Hall was a lifeboat for them. Who, you know, Hall has had big matches with big crowds, crowds he can't control. And I think he does. he did such a good job of just getting them safely through that. And that's what I appreciate most about that. Um... I want to just go back to that the finish. Kevin Nash is coming in to break, you know, I've hit their great little move, sidewalk slam, uh, Harlem hangover, by all accounts, it, it's going to be over. It's a nice little moment. It looks like they could actually beat the outsiders. Nash is inevitably going to come in and break it up. Colonel Robert Parker, who, you know, we've covered the previous pay-per-views and his, his time frame through WCW as a heel manager. He's always been that little liver guy. He's meant to be like he's he, he's like with Jeff Jarrett earlier, he's a scrappy do in a in a quasi babyface situation on purpose. And he's meant to be coming to do the valiant thing for his team, sticking his neck out like he did in the past for you know, Bunkhouse Buck and other guys like that in the stud stable when he had to, and run interference to help his team win. He gets grabbed by Kevin Nash, and rather than punch him, Nash goes, Give me that cane or I'm gonna destroy you. And Parker immediately gives him the cane and runs backstage. Yeah, if you watch the camera angle when when uh, he hits uh, Booker T with the cane, Parker is making a beeline. You don't see him again. He legs it. I really like that. For me, that was good storytelling. I appreciated that. But yeah, um, there were a lot of things that they really didn't factor in in the big picture. Um, and I have to ask you this, Mike, because you know I am a big Shikara fan, and my biggest 
my most favourite period of Shikara was something that had, I'm guessing there was a little bit of inspiration from this NWO period, is, I'm sure you can guess, I'm going to say, the BDK invasion, where a mm. faction formed in Shikara, for, for Dean's benefit as well as some of our listeners, a faction formed in Shikara that kind of splintered off of Rudo and Technico, Hill and Babyface. And there was that period, I suppose WCW, this pay-per-view recovering, is in that period now, where their biggest problem is that the the hills and the baby faces are, you know, they don't like each other, but then this invading force are pretty much picking them both apart while they're fighting a war on two fronts. And mm. it's it, there's a certain nuance to it, and I, I, and I get that. And it's a shame they never did, you know, the idea is is, is that, both sides bond together under the WCW banner and give the NWO their comeuppance. We know that doesn't happen, but as someone who who made an attempt to book this, and for you know any Shikara fan, I think would would say that it was one of their favourite periods in the history of the company. Uh, I don't know if you can offer any insight as to exactly how short-sighted they were being with certain aspects of this, and how do you avoid situations like this? Well, um, I have a little bit of insight into what was going on in WCW at this time, because there was a period where Sean Waltman was a semi-frequent guest at Chikara. Yes. Um, uh, maybe a story for another time is how we managed to persuade him to reprise the one, two, three kid. But when he, I can remember we were, we sat front row at the Trocadero theater before one of Chikara's eye pay-per-views. And he was talking about this period of WCW when the Outsiders and Hogan and the NWO suddenly become the most powerful players in professional wrestling, as evidenced by the reaction that we hear here when these guys come out against what should have been the babyfaces, right? Harlem Heater defending WCW. Mm. And Waltman had said to me, what characterized it was, one, they stumbled onto something that became way hotter than they ever thought it was going to be, but no one knew how to end the story. And because from week to week, as he put it, they would come in and backstage for like a Monday Nitro, for example. There'd be a giant whiteboard where someone had taken a magic marker and had written what was supposed to happen up on the show. Or up on the board, I mean, excuse me. And Hulk Hogan would come in, who had creative control, and would pick up the eraser and would just erase anything that he didn't like. And then Randy Savage would come in. And I believe, as he, as he famously said that night on Nitro, it was supposed to be Randy Savage against the Disco Inferno. And Randy Savage just went, nope, nope, and just e erased that. Then Kevin Nash came in, and Kevin Nash had limited creative control, but enough that he could erase a couple things. And he said, by the time everyone who could do that was done, there were no matches left for Monday Nitro. <laughs> and they had an hour until they went live. This is during <laughs> their hottest period. There's nothing planned. Fucking and he up. said, that lack of creative direction and control destroyed it like they could have they had enough writers enough people experienced in crafting wrestling that they could have gotten it to an acceptable finish line but it was soured by too many cooks in the kitchen and when i sometimes hear people describe to me what i i think of as vince russo style booking and i might be using that term unfairly i don't mean any offense to anybody but it's but it's that they they start from a great idea wouldn't this be cool but they have no idea how to walk that through the finish line. All they have in mind is the first thing or one beat 
of a story, but a story's not one beat long. Sometimes a story is 30 or 50 or 70 beats long. And when you do something really long form, like we did when we did the BDK angle that you're referring to, Liam, that was something we started foreshadowing a full year in advance. Yeah. And the repercussions of it were still felt years after the main group had shattered. So you've got to have that point out on the horizon that you're constantly aiming the ship at. And when you start to deviate off course, you just need to look out at that point on the horizon and say, hey, turn the wheel a couple degrees to the right. We have to get back on course. What I discovered from having these chats sometimes with Sean Waltman was that from week to week, they had no idea. And because they were also trying to be reactive in WCW's booking based on whatever moves WWF had just made, sometimes that direction changed every single, you know, from Monday to when they taped Thunder to when they got to the pay-per-view. The direction of the company could change three times the same week. It's, yeah, it's... Very, I mean, very, it's very interesting, very true. I mean, when, you know, I, I had, I guess I'd call it a, a cup of coffee as a, a booker before, but one thing I would do was I would work backwards. I knew I I had the the end goal, you know, whether it be putting the belt on someone or turning someone or whatever it might be and work backwards. And, and with independent wrestling, obviously the problem you have is that, you know, people may not be available for certain dates or I guess people might get injured or, or whatever, but yeah, start with the end in mind and work, work backwards. Cause, cause then you know where you're going to. And, and, and we've discussed previously on this podcast, how they didn't quite know how to end the NWO angle. And it just carried on and carried on and carried on. You know, the, the marquee sign of, a wrestler with a, a sensitive, precious ego, you could say, and with creative control to where you get that trademark sign where they're happy to sign up for a storyline that sees them come in as a heel, wipe everything out, dominate. You get to that point where you really want to see someone rise up. You get that big moment, you get the epic showdown, and then obviously the, the bad guy gets their comeuppance, and they get to that point, straight off they've dominated, that they're like, oh, you know, I'm not feeling this storyline anymore because it's not portraying me as the all-conquering superstar. And... There are so many storylines like that in WCW, especially, and they do happen elsewhere, but especially in WCW with the creative control, that you, I really don't think you have to be a fly on the wall to, to have it in your gut that you know that's exactly what's happening there. Every single heel has to get their comeuppance at the end of it. That There has to be a payoff because the reason people keep coming back is because they're hoping that this is the time that the heel loses. This is the time the heel looks stupid. And, you know, for the, for Hogan and for the NWO, it should have been Starcade 97. And obviously we know how that all screwed up, but yeah, every heel has to have their comeuppance in the end. And you always hear this shit, this utter garbage, this tripe about how TV apparently has to keep you guessing and constant surprises and this, that and the other. And you always often hear that one of my biggest gripes about discussing wrestling with other fans is when a fan will take up the stance that a big business, like a big company like WCW and WWE, um, they don't really have to worry about storytelling and finishing a story and having good nuance 
And both of those things are such garbage when you think about actual TV series and dramas and that. And the, and the ones that make it big, the Breaking Bads and what have you, have great storytelling, great definite hooks in. And there's always the odd twist and cliffhanger and, and turn, you could say, for, to use a, a wrestling um, phrase in television situations. But a lot of the time, they give you the, the season finale that you have been anticipating, that you've been starting to build up for. They give you the two characters getting together and getting married that they've been um, building up to because people are clamouring to see that. The the Big Bang theories of the world and such, they give you, people say it's not the mo- most exciting creative, they, they build something up and they give you that. And that's why it makes a lot of money, because it does adhere to that storyline thing. Even if they do, they get to that point where they can coast and stretch things out a bit. But even then, it's still coherent. It's not as exciting, but it's it's not as ridiculous as some of the crap we see in WCW. Yeah, but even like you look at soap operas, you know, their, their biggest episodes, their biggest viewed episodes is when people know something dramatic is happening because, you know, the, the media, the papers, social media, whatever is put spoilers out. But, you know, if you know that... Or if it's some coming big... in a mile away. Yeah, if it's coming a mile away, it's been built up, it's obvious what's going to happen. Or if the papers say that, you know, I oh, know Dirty Den's going to die in EastEnders or something, people watch because they... they know what's going to happen they anticipate what's going to happen absolutely Mm -hmm. and fans ultimately this speaks to long-term engagement if a fan feels like oh you know what i think is going to happen and then it happens they feel validated like i understand this show i understand the story it gets me and i get it but when you're constantly swerved or tricked like which again to me is sort of indicative of vince russo style booking it makes you feel like oh i don't get this I thought I knew where this is going, and I I don't get it. Maybe I don't understand it. And it leads to a disconnect between you and your fan base, which is kind of like, I think, the opposite of what you want. You you can get the good, I never expected that kind of reaction. There's the turn, the twist that makes logical sense, and the turn and the twist that's just done for the sake of swerving people, basically. Right, exactly. There's a reason why people revere, for example, what happens in the final act of the movie The Usual Suspects. You feel like, oh, I did not see that twist coming, right? We all know a movie like that, but nobody regards those types of Russo-esque swerves with that. Nah. Yeah, more, more importantly, watch the film again for like the sixth time where you know exactly what's going to happen and it will still bring out that reaction from you because it's so well done and mm-hmm. the dramatic tension is so palpable. I think that's the acid test. If you can go back and re-watch something and still feel like you're watching it for the first time, then you know a, a dramatic twist or a surprise was well done. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. Several of those we could we could talk about. But I, yeah, it's, it's that emotional investment, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, precisely. And yeah. it's a shame to look at Havoc 96 where they had that emotional investment and it led to, you know... the. This pay-per-view broke gate records. Being in Vegas helped because they can mark up the ticket prices and get away with it. But that still fails if your product is shit. And they managed to get in the money. Everything was working. They had two very profitable years. And they failed to keep that going. You know, I don't care how much money guys who are in it for themselves are making, in my opinion. If you can set something up where you're making slightly less for four times as long that, that's the way it's, it's short-sightedness this is a, it's a shame yeah. because 
we suffer. Shall we move on to the main event? Before we bash our heads against the wall. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it is Randy Savage against Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Oh, wait. I, cha- uh, I changed my mind. No, no. Let's just stop now, please. Yeah. Please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do it. So um, Hogan appears at the NWR interview lo- location where what looks like a quite convincing looking wig if we didn't all know what he actually looks like normally. Um, cuts a promo where he's clearly not interested in being a heel at all, encouraging people for, to cheer for him. He's accompanied to the ring by Vincent and the Giant. So uh, it's time Michael Buffer introduces um, the, the rest as our referee is Randy Anderson, so not Nick Patrick. Um Savage's music starts playing while Buffer's still introducing Hogan. Then it stops, so it starts again. And Savage, as we as we mentioned, comes out looking like a, a walking advert for uh, for Slim Jim. That's Slim Jim. Slim Jim, like like the ring posts. Slim ah, Jim. A Halloween havoc brought to you by Slim Jim. Yes. Now I did wonder this: Did Savage ever beat Hogan in a main event singles match? Every time, because. I want to say yes. If, because it just seems seems to me that on watching this, no one thinks, nobody thinks Savage is going to win it. Mm-hmm. Because we've seen I, this before, even with the I, roles reversed. I, ca- I can't think of one. No. Maybe right. You see, that's... There, was a, there was a non-finish in the cage match at Uncensored, so that wasn't a win. Um, no... Yeah, you think no. of the big matches like you know the the Madison Square Garden shows, the WrestleMania Five, Hogan always won. Yeah. yeah, the closest I suppose was World War Three, where he got the win over Hogan. They basically reenacted Rumble '92, where Savage and the Giant were Ric Flair and Sid Justice. Right, but that was the closest. Well, that's that's not a win, is it? I, I convinced myself ball, that yeah. maybe it happened, but no, you it hasn't, no. has it? So yeah, um, so the the, mon- the macho man monster truck gets driven into the arena for no apparent reason, and Savage just stands by it. It, it looks good, but it's no Rusev in a tank, you know. Um, so Randy Anderson sends the giant to the back. The bell rings. Hogan is seemingly wrestling in a wig and sunglasses. There's absolutely tons of stalling uh, early on. The crowd seem to be more interested in Hog- in the outsiders than Hogan here. I think probably because of the novelty of Hogan and uh, of Hall and Nash wrestling in WCW, whereas Hogan had obviously been around for a couple of years already. Um, about 10 minutes into the match, a top rope axe handle from Savage finally knocks Hogan's sunglasses off. He has wrestled in the main... Well, I say wrestled. He has appeared in the main event for 10 minutes wearing sunglasses and, and has been fine... Um, moments later the wig goes as well uh, and then Hogan switches into a holiday camp heel at this point as uh, Savage gets his shine Hogan then takes over the the steel chair on the outside Elizabeth walks down looking concerned as she always did uh, wearing a multicoloured dress and the commentators make a point of saying she's not wearing black so they take that to mean she's on the side of Savage the distraction allows Savage to sneak up and roll a two, roll up a two count which the crowd popped for again they, they pop, this crowd popped for quick pinfall attempts throughout the whole show um, on the outside Hogan used Elizabeth as a human shield they brawl on the outside Elizabeth gets into the ring tries to protect Savage as Hogan backs her into a corner 
Um, Hogan misses his leg drop as uh, Savage moves out of the way. We then get a ref bump, of course we do. Here comes Nick Patrick, as does Mark Curtis. Um, Savage slams Hogan, hits the big elbow. Patrick counts to two and then grabs his neck in apparent agony. Um, Savage shoves Patrick down. Hogan grabs a foreign object. Savage grabs it back off Hogan and nails Hogan with it. Hogan's down. Patrick's down. Um, DiBiase grabs Savage's leg to stop him going up to the top for an elbow again. They tussle on the outside. The giant comes down and executes a, a choke slam of sorts on the outside. Um, Shivani then says, we've been ripped off. And I'm thinking, well, at least you didn't have to pay for this main event, Tony. Um, the giant rolls Savage into the ring, puts Hogan on top of him, and Patrick counts to three without any problem. Hogan is out. He's out for the count. Giant comes down with what looks like a trophy full of ice water, which then gets dumped on Hogan. And, and you know, I'm surprised because given the Hulk Hogan's ego, I'm amazed that he hasn't, cre- he hasn't claimed that he invented the ice bucket challenge because it happened on um, Halloween Havoc 96, 20 years before uh, before it came on, out on social media. Yeah, well, it, it, it should be the, uh, the Hulk Hogan grill, remember, brother? Absolutely, yeah. He just didn't get that phone call. Um, <laughs> Hogan then cuts a promo, fresh as a daisy. Um, yeah, awful main event. Um, and then, just, just as the final credits to this, Bagpipe music starts playing, which can only mean one person, or it takes the commentators ages to twig. It's Roddy Piper uh, out to reenact another WWF feud from the 80s. But, you know, it's okay because Hogan and Savage are, are 43 and he's only 42. So, you know, he's a spring chicken by comparison. Um, again, did Piper ever beat Hogan in a singles match? Ho- Piper says, You never beat me, but I don't think he ever beat Hogan either. He would. Um, <laughs> Two, he two, did. Months, two months later. He would, yes, but not previous to this. I think, yeah, because he's saying you've never no. beaten Oh, right, yeah. No. Yeah. I, I think every singles match they ever had had a, like a, a bit of a phony ending. You know, it was just a, not a clean finish. But um, Piper, basically, this is to set up um, the main event for Starcade 96, and, and Piper just cuts a, a long promo. Um, so the pay-per-view is now becoming an episode of Nitro. Hogan leaves the ring then says something about you meant to squat in that thing when you go to the toilet because Piper's wearing his kilt. Piper gets in the ring, back in the ring, and carries on talking. And bearing in mind what happened at Halloween Havoc 1998, this is a bit of a precursor to it, because the pay-per-view literally fades out with no credits rolling, the sound fading down as Piper keeps on talking. Kind of unbelievable. So, yeah. Main, main event not really up to the quality of the undercard, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> to put it to put it kindly, <laughs> well, that review is entirely accurate. Um, yeah, this whole segment from you know the NWO interview position to the ring, the Michael Buffer announcements, all of that, and the post match with Roddy Piper, it just felt like it went on an eternity. And if you look at, I had to watch it back on the WWE Network where they neatly break everything up on a timeline so you can see how big the chunks are for each match. When I saw how big that chunk of time was at the end, I thought, oh, maybe maybe I picked the wrong pay-per-view. This, this might not have been the best idea here, Mike. Um, <laughs> it's also interesting that this is maybe the only match that is clearly looking to the past of pro wrestling. If you go back to the beginning of this card and look at Rey Mysterio Jr. and Dean Malenko, what they were doing presentation, size-wise, style-wise, uh, that's the future of pro wrestling we're looking at. 
DDP beginning his ascent to the top of the card. We're looking ahead at the future of pro wrestling about look at guys like Eddie Guerrero. And then as you work your way toward the main event, it becomes more and more about looking backward until you get to this, right? We're talking about Hogan and Piper who faced off back at WrestleMania one Hogan versus Savage, the main event of WrestleMania five. Um, it's very much looking backwards, whereas, and, and boy, when you hold this up against the exact same main events WWF was putting out at the same time, just weeks later, Shawn Michaels walks Psycho Sid to maybe the best singles match of his entire career at Survivor Series. The differences are are, are never more stark. Yeah, the, the sad thing about this match is, yeah, it's it's a money match, and in a lot of scenarios, as you touched upon, Mike, if a company or a different company even runs two guys up against each other like you know seven years after it first took place it very seldom can match the sort of anticipation or potential takings at the, at the box office but and, and it's entirely down to that nwo formation that big moment at bash at the beach that this one has a second pair of legs and mm-hmm. It's it's bittersweet for me because it is you know it, it's there it they had to do this match big money match I understand it happening it was uh, Savage who got turned on big moment uh, I I didn't really get fully into ardent WCW fandom until a little bit after this latching you know latching onto the Monday Night Wars but I kind of wish I was there at this time and I'd have been hook line and sinker on this match and that's the problem because it's pretty evident that guys like Hulk and Savage knew that the fan base was hook line and sinker I don't know if you guys have ever heard that little story about Hogan uh, I'll, I'll be half telling it because I'm not sure the details it may just be urban legend but it very much checks in with with the way his career has gone but there was this story of a of a match he was having with someone early into the match and the opponents attempting to set a bit of a pace to the point where Hogan's grabbed hold of his arms, leant into his ear and whispered, slow down brother, we already have their money. Uh, whether that's true or not and who exactly that was, that was he was in the ring with, I'm not sure, but hmm. my word does it check out. Can you easily believe that? And this is one of those things where they're, as you said, Dean, they're fucking goofing around for 10 minutes. And I'm all for a bit of comedy, but this is like being billed as a massive grudge match. And This is the most important main event in the history of WCW, according to Tony Schiavone at the beginning of the show. Thanks to the NWO, he's only doing a a slight bit of his usual hyperbole. It's a huge Mm. match. It's... I'm not expecting them to do Hurricane Ranas or anything, but a little bit of intensity, and you can probably go back to the bank a second time, I'm presuming. I'm saying this as someone with zero experience, but as a customer sitting there thinking, well, do, do you want me to walk away? Do you want to piss me off? Because remember, two years after this, we got Hulk Hogan versus The Warrior in the rematch. Yeah. And that was similar time span separation, seven, eight years. And that match is, is pointing to back from Brian Alvarez to anyone else who's 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 been sad enough to spend more than five minutes looking back at WCW's rise and fall as as one of the moments where the where the mass audience thought to themselves, right, well this place has peaked. They're gonna go off down here. We've got the WWE, we've got ECW, fuck them. Yeah. Uh, and I... we've got a precursor here. And you know what the the sad thing is, is that, you know, if you watch 
any of Hogan's matches in Japan when he when he was like the the headlining for WWF and they did some shows over in Japan. He had like a match with Muta or he had a match with mm. Stan Hansen. Mm-hmm. He could go if he needed to and he wanted to. And he he went when he was in Japan because he knew that the fans in Japan would not accept the type of match the effort that he put in in america he knew he'd get shot he'd get shot on by the crowd and he didn't want that because of i guess his his you know his ego he wouldn't want to look bad so he actually put the effort in there so it wasn't that he couldn't do it it's just that he wouldn't do it look at 2002 his comeback I'm adamant that Vince McMahon or someone there with the power, you imagine it's only Vince, has cracked the whip or dangled a carrot maybe, if that's how he works, and gone, you know, you, you, want, this, you want this big run, you need to do this and do that. And I, I enjoyed some of it. You know, he had that match with Kurt Angle where he did his best. I remember the match with Triple H where he busted out the moveset. He put in that effort. And it weren't, it weren't like he suddenly became this, this amazing technical wrestler overnight. But yeah, just just a little bit of effort will do nicely sometimes. Mm. I mean, I I still say the the greatest professional wrestling match I have ever seen live was Hogan against The Rock at WrestleMania 18, and it was I'm not saying it was the best technical match. It wasn't. You know, it wasn't necessarily the best storyline or whatever. It was just the spectacle and the way that they both had every single person in that Sky Dome hanging and reacting on every single movement you know of their of their body it was the, it was the most amazing lesson to watch their live just because you know he knew all eyes were on him he knew it was meant to be handing over to the rock he wanted to look good himself and you know and, and put the effort in and it was yeah it's that's the sad thing it can be done if if needed and then yeah and then obviously we have um we have the thing with piper where i mean someone the, the referees would have had earpieces back in 96. People would have been telling Piper, surely wrap it up, Roddy, it's time to go. That's what Meltzer said, yeah. Apparently there was like a, a sea of directors frantically waving their arms. <laughs> One thing we said uh, before we actually came on the air here, D- Dean and I actually said, like, Jesus, just have him come out <laughs> and stare Hogan down. We are um, just a few months removed from the Royal Rumble in Philadelphia and we had that big finish with Ronda Rousey coming down this is the the irony with the you know the fact that she got permission to use uh, the, uh, the the rowdy nickname and things like that and the and the t-shirt images and things like that um, and she came out she did you know a very awkward stare down but still she came out got got what it, she needed to do done without saying a word and Given that we're in the age where t- you want money out of pay-per-views, but t- for these sort of things, these talk fests, TV's king, suspense, TV's king, have him come out. Wow, look what happened pay-per-view. Nitro, let's have him actually talk. How yeah. fucking difficult is that? Oh, my God. What Roddy Piper's here. We're running out of time. We'll find out what... Yeah, we'll, he'll speak on Nitro, and then you've got your crowd for the pay-per-view watching Nitro and not Raw. Job done. <laughs> it's not rocket science. But why did it happen like that, Liam? Because WCW. But to, mm. to dive in, to dive in a little deeper, and and this was a, I think this was a Meltzer conversation about it that I read up on. Um, 
Roddy Roddy Piper, yeah, I love Roddy Piper to bits. He is one of my favourites. He's done so much good in professional wrestling. Uh, I had the honour of um, interviewing his widow as part of a. Like, they was doing a documentary that I publicised on Yahoo a year or so ago. I've got a tremendous amount of love and respect for him as a as a performer, but there was something about his interview style where he really would babble on and we're we're talking about Bobby Heenan's dated references and Lex Luger's tendency to waffle when he runs out of cliches earlier and Piper could be a combination of those two at times and Meltzer would speculate that the thing about a guy like Piper is that you get to this you, you get over a line as far as your personality goes where you are so accepted in pop culture and so revered by the industry you're famous in that you can just go and do whatever the fuck you want and and people just love your magnetism and the way you deliver the lines, even if the lines are garbage. The people just let Piper go out of a mic and talk. And there was some there was some more disastrous results of that than this when he I remember when he went into TNA early doors, for instance. But yeah, mm. he was one of those guys, and there's not many of those in the way the industry is now, there won't be too many more of them. And maybe just the rock who basically whenever he returns to WWE can just do a massive improv session. Uh, yeah. Some are great, some are not. But Conor McGregor in the UFC can, is, mm-hmm. is in that category. He nah, he, t- he tends to just throw large objects at buses and get arrested. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, he can he can kind of do what he wants. He Look, can, talking, yeah. yeah, but uh, anyway, t- talking talking of, of wrapping things up, we really have got to to, to get going on this. Um, Mike, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, guys, thanks for letting me do it. Thanks yeah. for offering. Hey, we, it's been it's been great. Now, before you go, uh, you obviously you you are a man who does podcasts yourself. Where can we where can we hear your stuff? Well, uh, the podcast that I make semi regularly with Bryce Remsburg of Chikara is called Deep Blue Something, and we not only talk about Chikara but our love of wrestling in general. We express our fandom there. Um, I recently made a short term podcast project called kayfabe 2.0 and it's meant as the companion piece for my most recent book seven keys to becoming a better performer a book for fellow pro wrestlers you can grab it on amazon.com if you want it on your kindle they'll deliver it there in seconds you could start reading it almost instantaneously and i have something to offer to listeners of this very podcast if anything we've said about chikara intrigues you and you're interested to dive into our video vault a little bit, or even watch, we have more than a dozen live streams coming up still this calendar year. I have a promo code that'll give you four free weeks of the service. Use promo code JEDDAH, J-E-D-D-A-H, like the town where the greatest Royal Rumble was held, and it'll give you four weeks of free Chikaratopia. Jump in, watch the live streams with us. Uh, We have one coming up this very weekend, or Go back and explore the BDK story that Liam referred to, or see Green Ant on the Flex Express on his way to battle Tursus, like I mentioned when I was discussing Lex Luger. All of that and tons more await you at Shikaratopia.com. Customer endorsement, I can say as a Shikaratopia subscriber, it's well worth the money spent. I'm a huge fan. So, just before we uh, we let you go, Mike, we do always ask all of our guests for a WCW theme tune of their choice. Uh, what is your choice? Well, a favorite of mine, which somehow just always creeps up, I don't know why, is Harlem Heat's entrance theme. This is no 
So, uh, so why why did you choose this one, Mike? This is one that really gets stuck in your head, and unlike some of that more generic-sounding stuff, like the Chris Jericho theme we were discussing earlier in the episode today, there's something really memorable about this, and not because, hey, isn't that smells like teen spirit? That's not why you remember this one. Um, it just kind of gets stuck in your head and comes back in weird moments. Yeah, what I, I mean, I, I am a guy, uh, I make no bones about my love of just blatant rip-off WCW themes. Some of them are great, in my opinion. But, yeah, there's nothing quite like a, a great, unique wrestling theme. And to think of all the things when WWE took WCW over in 2001, to think of all the things they jettisoned, some of them like war games have only just started to see the potential value in now. And this was one of the few entrance themes that didn't get touched, didn't get, yes. obviously they, they added their own little uh, fade in with the can you dig it, but if you think about it, Booker T, he had about five different ones in the dying days of WCW. I still remember the, don't hate the player, hate the game, hate the game. One, which is, has yeah. to be one of the worst ones, because it just didn't fit, and it was just clunky. It's not exactly mm -hmm. glass shattering, is it? But the theme yeah. stood the test of time, and it became his theme. It was Harlem Heat's theme, like here at Halloween Havoc 96, and it, 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 it will forever be Booker T's personal music which is which is yeah. a great thing for a professional wrestler to to have just that music that is synonymous with them mm -hmm. yeah. mike did you say about the yes 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 no 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 and the training thing that we talked yeah, about I, yeah. I don't know why but every once and again you know i'm watching my trainees do whatever it is that they're doing at the wrestle factory and i unconsciously this just comes out of my mouth i do that yes 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 no, no, no. In my mind, it's the Harlem Heat music. Now, I'm sure my students have no idea why I'm saying that or doing that, um, other than to be confusing and arbitrary. But in my mind, the Harlem Heat music's playing. Yeah, I thought I was the only one who noticed that. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. I'm so glad someone else has. I, I thought it was ice, 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 cold, cold, cold. And, and please tell me I'm not the only one who thought that. It's Yanny oh. or it's Laurel. It's <laughs> I was just about to say. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I have been converted over to yes, 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 no, 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 since. But when I was a kid in school, it was ice, ice. Because my friends who watched those stuff would be like, well, why are they doing ice cold? They're Harlem heat. they got flames on their tights. It makes no sense. Well, apparently it wasn't ice cold, but it was in fact a tribute to the Zodiac character that Brutus Beefcake played. Oh, mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> Do you remember that? All oh, great art is subjective. If it says ice cold to you, Liam, that's what it says. <laughs> awesome. Right. So uh, thank you so much for joining us, Mike. So it's Deep Blue Something and Kayfabe 2.0. And where can we find that? Is that on iTunes? That's right. Yep. You'll find them on SoundCloud, iTunes, and other places great podcasts can be found. And where can we find you yourself on social media? Oh, I was going to say, just come to my flat. That's where you'll find me. But if you're looking for me specifically on social media, I only do the Twitter. That's the only place you'll find me. I'm at Mike Quackenbush. It makes it easy to remember. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome back anytime you want again. One last quick plug. We are now on Patreon. And if there's anyone who listens and is 
crazy well you're listening because you're crazy enough to go back to old dose dough pay views so maybe we can convince you to part with maybe a dollar a month maybe five there's a few extra higher tiers we've stuck on with rewards if you want to check out it's patreon.com slash because wcw we're going to keep doing this we love doing this but you know, with a little bit of support, maybe we can take this to newfound levels. Maybe Dean can get some professional fucking gear for once. Maybe we can start doing some live Nitro podcasts where Dean and I will watch editions of Nitro in chronological order uh, together and just give, give our thoughts, our hot takes off the top of our heads. So who knows what the future holds? If you have got a few quid going and you'd love to see us step this up a little bit get involved subscribe be, become a, a patreon a patreon whatever it's called i'm i'm new to this thing myself but we're going to give it a go and, and let's try this together one last thing uh if you are sad enough i've written that fan fiction i've told about if fusion bought wcw i've actually taken time before the house moved to move it along a bit i have got to star k 2002 some fucking hell uh and if you're interested in that sort of reading on the toilet on the train uh there is a swerve ending at the end of star that will shock you bro that's all I'm going to say. But if you're into that thing, please, please give it a read because I've, I've taken the time just to re- write a little bit of my spare time. And I've, I've really appreciated the feedback that this WCW specific podcast has given me so far. Please get in touch, have a read, get in touch. Let me know what you think. I just love the idea of like your missus saying to you, Liam, have you packed the kitchen stuff up yet? And you're like, sorry, love, just writing Starcade 2002. <laughs> oh, but it's a belter. There's so many good matches and so many stipulations. If she would just read it, she'd understand, but she refuses. You can uh, you can find that on uh, our website because www.podbean.com. On behalf of Liam Happ and our special guest Mike Quackenbush, thank you so much for joining us. Please uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, rate and review us. It helps keep us going. If you like this, tell a friend. If you don't, then keep it to yourself. This is the Twisted Genius Dean Ayers saying thank you so much for joining us. I'll see you ringside.